This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. This is the show where we give you the latest, greatest research, the information you need to, to live healthier, happier lives. You know, it's one thing to just, you know, be here. It's another to be effectively living the life you want to live. This is the show where we try to give you uh, some some of the latest research. Interesting uh, guest today. We're going to be talking about your political beliefs, why they actually may cause a little fighting, why you may choose to, you know, protect yourself, turn into that fight or flight, uh, you know, mode when you are dealing with political issues. It's just politics, for heaven's sakes. But no, it's so much more than that. We will get into that about your political identity. It becomes part of who you are. And we'll have a researcher from USC to walk us through some of his uh, latest and greatest research. By the way, happy baby day. It is so cute when I walk in from the parking lot. And I look into my coworkers' cars, and there's just little baby seats in the back, little car carriers. That's a big boy seat, by the way. Sorry, big. Don't let anyone big, hear you huge say that. Toddler boy seats. There you go. And you probably have one in your car we right did, now, right? We did, except we handed it off to grandma, the other grandma, today. Yes, last night. So, Ooh. no more car seat in our car. And honestly, there's a there's an emptiness in the house. Now, who are you going to spoil? You know, it's funny. Um, nobody. Hmm. The entire spirit of the house is it just changes when the baby, the grandbaby's gone. All of my my kids aren't as nice. They just sit there on their technology and together we ignore each other all evening long while we watch an NBA playoff game. It's the American way. The American way. I thought that would extend into the workplace. That, you know, you would want to fill that void with your coworkers mm. and just say, you know what? Mm. Here's a piece of candy. Nah. No. Hmm. No. Not interested in that. Unless you guys got candy. Do you guys have candy? No. The student who left their candy here they must either have, took it or yeah, they're probably away. They was probably thrown out. Darn it. It is baby day. That's the smiley, squishy faces are the perfect reason to put baby day on the map. It's difficult to pinpoint where this day originated. One can easily speculate. You know, anyone that's ever yearned for, had, or known a baby could list dozens of reasons why babies are special. Babies are cute. Today's the day we celebrate their cuteness. Boy, now I miss my grandbaby. I'll be fine. It's really for any. I'll see her again. It's really for anybody that uh, has ever been a baby. Yeah. So today's your day. But some people have never been a baby. Oh, yeah. I think everybody's been a baby, and some have never grown out of it. Like the guy driving in front of me today, who almost got cut off. Turned Mm. into a big, fat baby. Wow. Using little hand baby gestures and bad baby language. I was directly behind somebody that got into an accident over the weekend. Oh, and they left. We were on the same cul-de-sac in my neighborhood. We were backing out at the same time. I decided to let him go in front of me. And that could have been you. And it could have been us. And my wife probably would have had to go to the hospital, and I probably would have been an, a dad for the third time. Wow. I'm glad you didn't. I'm glad you just drive the way you do, very conservatively. Whew. You dodged a bullet. 
Was it a Dodge Bullet? No. Was it a Dodge I Dart? A, I think it was a Prius. Ah, of course it was. It's always a Prius. Uh, we'll get to all that fun straight ahead, plus other headlines information you may need to know about. We are still looking for a new uh, a couple of um, contributors to the show. So we'll be talking about that sometime in the day today. I, I was told we were only looking for one. Well, so we're gonna we're, we're waiting to see how this uh, show. We're, we're launching a new show on Friday at the, my the last hour of the Matt Townsend show is going to be a movie show. We're gonna see how that goes because if that doesn't go well, then we'll probably need two or three different contributors. <laughs> They're booing because I I don't think. You should be showing a lack of faith. I'm not showing a lack of faith. I'm just showing proactivity. Hmm. Isn't that the product that's piped or that's uh, you know endorsed by all the celebrities? No, that's I think proactive. Oh, okay, yeah, proactivity. But first, before all of these other topics, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Find out what uh, we should be focusing on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? Hollywood writers and major entertainment studios reached a tentative deal late Monday night halting a strike that would have begun Tuesday, threatening immediate halt to late-night TV shows, soap operas, and more gradual problems for films and scripted TV shows down the line. The 9,000-member Writers Guild of America and Alliance of Motion Pictures Television producers evidently found common ground in the last minute after a long week of tense negotiating. The agreement specifically dealt with an increase in television residuals guide the guild's health insurance plan and provisions for shorter television seasons Ooh. as of last uh, is that gonna ha- is are the shorter seasons happening or did uh, they negotiate I, those away i certainly hope so these shows that need to sc- squeeze in 23 episodes yeah so they have about 10 episodes during the season which are pointless they're just sort of hey we did That's something true, huh? and so if you really like squish down to like they're talking about getting it from 23 which is a kind of the average typical season down to say 10 you get it right down to the story and you just get all the, the good episodes well i know but then you have to wait a year for your next i don't know installment i think it'd be i think it'll lead to better more quality tv i, I maybe 15 is a better number We'll see. Okay. It's all negotiable because, you know. But, they're, but they, they've stopped the strike. The strike's not going to threaten your team. <sighs> You'll be Good. okay. The owner of the giant rabbit who died on the, in the care of United Airlines Tuesday, or last Tuesday, said the scandal-scarred uh, airline cremated her bunny's remains so she would never know the truth about how the bunny died. The whole thing stinks of a cover-up, she says. Her name's Annette Edwards. She's 65. She was talking to the, the son over in the U.K., I had been asking United over and over again for his body so that I could have it examined here in Britain, but they they never got it back to me. All I want to know is how it died. A, uh, she's a UK rabbit breeder. She was flying the three foot long continental giant rabbit named Simon. <laughs> that had a name from London to Chicago's O'Hare Airport to deliver him to his new owner in the U.S. When he, as it says here, inexplicably kicked the bucket. Oh, little graphic way of... I mean, come on. The bunny died. United claimed that this new owner in the U.S., uh, he claimed that the rabbit was alive when it was taken out of the cargo section of the airplane. The airline CEO, Oscar Munoz, uh, tried to apologize after the rabbit's death, but drew fire for likening the pet to misplaced baggage. Yeah, that was... This is, of course, after they dragged the guy off the airplane. Them is fighting words. They're not having a good time. United said there are PR problems, and uh, there's no autopsy because they 
cremated the animal oh. without permission. Oh, boy. The rumor that's out there yeah. that United says is completely false is that they left the animal in a freezer and it died. How'd you like to perform a bunny or- autopsy? This was no accident. I think I did that in ninth grade. Didn't we dissect bunnies? Well, it's dissection. They're already dead. No, I think we had to kill ours. Really? They weren't bunnies. They were frogs. Sorry. Frogs. And finally, Tom McDonald stood up from his upper deck seat at City Field in New York. Mr. McDonald is a recently retired New York City Transit Authority officer worker who has an obligation to his childhood friend and fellow Mets fan, Roy Regal, whose death nine years ago left Mr. McDonald 56 vowing to honor their baseball bonds in an unconventional way Hmm. by disposing of Mr. Regal's ashes in ballparks across the country. Even more unusual was his chosen method, flushing them down public restroom toilets in the ballparks between innings. (laughs) The game has to be in progress. That's a rule of my... Go ahead. Really? They they flushed him down... Yeah, that's his request is he wants to be flushed in the public restrooms of ballparks across the country. I think he said it had to be one of those troughs, too. Couldn't be a stall. It had to be a trough. So the game has to be in progress. That's a rule, says Mr. McDonald. And one recent weeknight before uh, entering a city field bathroom holding a little plastic bottle containing a scoop full of Mr. Regal's cremains, he stepped into the bathroom stall, sprinkled the ashes into the toilet with as much decorum as the setting allowed. A couple of flushes later, Mr. Regal's remains were presumably on a journey through city fields plumbing. The key here is that Mr. Regal was a plumber. So how better to honor him than by plumbing his essence into the building Wow! that houses the game that he loves. They've been to 16 stadiums so far, and he's keeping a journal of the trips for the memory And, and I friend. assume they're not, like, announcing where they're going. No. He's just going to ballparks, watches some of the game, stands up, goes down to the has restaurant. Has a beverage. Has to be in between innings. It's just <laughs> common course of the game. Wow. I mean, Flush your friend. you know what? <laughs> Great. He, at least he knew what he wanted. Well, he's a plumber. Right. I want to be in the plumbing. He's a plumber that loves ball games. And, but if you've been to the restroom of all places, I mean, wouldn't you rather like be scattered on the field? Well, you'd be arrested. Not really. You Maybe could have he, somebody do a streaking run across the thing. If he was, again, you'd if he be was arrested. A, if he was a groundskeeper. You wouldn't be arrested. You know, if his job was to mow the dead. field. But he's yeah. a plumber. He hmm. wants to be in the plumbing. That's good. Okay. You know what? More power to you. Yeah. More power to you. Did you hear about this? Uh, did you hear about these two guys that are now um, being sued by a Wisconsin TV station? What they do? They pretended to be fitness experts on a morning news show. Oh. And it is the funniest thing. We've got to post it um, on our Twitter feed. Their names are Chop and Still. <laughs> and they're fake, they're fake fitness experts. And if you look at them, you can see they're not real fitness experts, but they were on a morning show in Wisconsin and um, Chop Shopson, Joe Chop Shopson and Nicholas Steele Stealing, uh, whose names, uh, whose real names are Joe Pickett and Nick Pruth Pruer, appeared on a WEAU Euclair Hello Wisconsin program uh, demonstrating a variety of strongman tricks. They together, they would hold a cinder block and curled it together. Oh. And they're just talking about how you, you can use anything around the home to, um, to work out. They had a sword fight with racquetball and badminton rackets. 
and they just kept hitting each other, hitting the hitting the rackets with um, against each other. They played. They did karate chop sticks where they just gathered a bundle of sticks from the yard, and one of them would karate chop them. See, they have a sign, and it looks like they just yeah. took out some paint and yeah. scribbled their name on it and threw it up and there. The funny thing is, like the the anchors of the morning show are just. Just they're they're learning, they're, and they're learning everything you can do by <laughs> chopping sticks. They stomped on Easter baskets, and uh, like one of them would wheel in an Easter basket, and I guess Chop would step on it. How long did this go on for? It was like a five-minute interview. Wow, they just kind of— I'm surprised they let him go on that long. The most ridiculous part was this stretch when Still explained uh, works how, how he's got—you got to work your delts, your tries, your plaps, your all pl- the major chest muscle groups. <laughs> your plaps? You got to work those plaps. So now they're being yeah. sued by um, by the station. Wow. So the, so they can't do this to anyone else. But nonetheless, they've now got the footage out there. We will put it on our feed at Doctor Matt Show. If I could find it everywhere I go, it says the video is now unavailable. Oh, really? I'm surprised that they would sue him because that would just highlight their incompetence. Yeah. Oh, now, okay. now more and more people are going to see Chop and Steel. May I mention another please, one? Please, please. So apparently, this was a few years back. There was this guy that was, he was going around to all these local TV stations saying that he was this yo-yo champion. And he would go on the show, same type of thing. They would do this big build-up and introduction, and they would ask him to show them a couple of yo-yo tricks and it was just complete and utter nonsense. He would just throw the yo-yo in a lasso around his head and make – so he would, there was nothing – he was not yeah. a yo-yo champion. Here's a picture of the guy. I think his real name is Mark Proch or something like that. The reason I bring this up, does this guy look familiar to you at all? I can't see – um, no. So apparently his shenanigans were viewed by Vince Gilligan and, um, gosh, what's the other the other guy's name? Vince Gilligan of Breaking Bad fame. Oh, wow. They put him on their show, Better Call Saul. He was really? in two seasons of Better yeah. Call Saul. See, so that's all it takes is to just, like, be a buffoon and go on a morning show, and then the next thing you know, you got a career. Yeah. Maybe that's why these guys did it. So he had a fake name, and uh, yeah, he just went on there and made made a fool but of the TV stations. Maybe this shows you, too, what what is real journalism. Maybe this is fake news. If these guys can be faked out like this, it's just fake news. Alternative facts. <laughs> maybe that's what set up the entire you know Donald Trump movement, is that people are okay watching fakery. Hmm. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, Today, though, we got a great guest that's going to help us understand why there's so much tension about our political beliefs and why we are so willing, once somebody questions our political beliefs, to put those gloves on and start fighting, why we fight for uh, politics. Up next, right here on The Matt Townsend Show.
You know, they say never talk about politics and religion in the workplace. Is this for a good reason? A study done by the University of Southern California explains why conversations get heated when people talk about politics and when their personal beliefs are being challenged. Here to speak with us about the research is uh, Dr. Jonas Kaplan, an assistant research professor at the Brain and Creativity Institute at the University of Southern California. Dr. Kaplan, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Good. Thank you for being here. And I, you know, I really... I'm so uh, excited to talk about this because for some reason we are so sensitive to our politics, aren't we? And to, I guess, our religious beliefs. What is it about these topics uh, that, that make us so either, I guess, reactive, fight or flight, or, or so, you know, sensitive? Yeah, that is a, a really good question, and that's one that we've been trying to answer with our research. Uh, we, we think that certain kinds of beliefs, like those that we have about politics and religion, are so important to us because they're part of our identity. You know, they're part of, of who we are and who we think we are and, and who other people think we are. They're, they're beliefs that tend to bind us to other people that we, we share in common with our, with our friends and family, and that makes them really difficult to change. Is it, is it I, guess, um, I guess it could be anything that, that are, are so held personally? Is that what it is, or is, it, is there something unique about politics? I don't think there's something unique about politics. I think any belief that, that becomes really important to us and becomes central to who we think we are becomes really difficult to change. Um, and what, what we did is we uh, tried to use brain imaging to, to look inside the brain to see if we could learn what, what's happening when, when people get challenged on, on these important topics. Because, like you said, this is an experience that all of us have, talking about politics or religion with, with friends and with family and how heated it gets, it seems like. Nobody ever changes their minds about these things. And from one perspective, it's important that we're able to remain flexible about politics in particular. I mean, it seems to me that one of the important principles of democracy is that by talking about things, by by, uh, dialogue and conversation, that we come to some kind of consensus. And Mm. if nobody ever changes their mind about these things... Um, it's, it's going to be very difficult for us to do that. So it's almost, and I think I read in the, in your article about this idea that, I mean, it becomes part of our identity and part of our uh, social group, right? So, because I guess part of this is that we are so tied to our religion, we are so tied to our political uh, group system um, that, that you, I guess it operates or it makes a, our brains, different parts of our brains function in different ways. Maybe talk about the brain and what's going on when we when we have these feelings. Yeah, so what we did was we took people with really, really strong political beliefs, these sort of political liberals that we found from the Los Angeles area around USC, and we um, used functional brain imaging to look inside the brain while we challenged those political beliefs. We challenged both political beliefs that they had and other beliefs that they say that they believe just as strongly but aren't as committed to. So people believe things like Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, and we challenged that belief. That's a belief people claim to hold very strongly, hmm. um, but it's not a political belief. It's not something that, that too many people are strongly committed to. Maybe there's a few Thomas Edison guys out there who are <laughs> feel really strongly about that, but they weren't in our study. So we challenged their political beliefs and their non-political beliefs, and we watched what happened in the brain while it was going on. And of course, as you might expect, with their political beliefs, it was very hard to change people's minds. People were very resistant and defensive. But with non-political beliefs, we were able to make some progress by presenting people with facts and, and arguments. And when we looked into the brain to see what was happening to compare those two situations, we found a few interesting things. One is that when people were thinking about their political beliefs, and we challenged them on those beliefs that they 
hold really dear to themselves compared to other beliefs. We saw activation in a brain network that we're very familiar with now, and we call it the default mode network. This is a brain network that becomes active when people think about themselves and about their identity, and also about things that are really, really important to them. And I think that um, this kind of drives home this idea that these political beliefs are really, really, um, for, for many of us, part of the core of who we are, and that's mm. part of what makes them difficult to achieve. And, and when, when that, well, by the way, when that brain goes off, when that part of the brain goes off, it, it's, I guess it just shuts down our openness. What does it do? Uh, I, I don't know if that in particular shuts down our openness, but I think that's part of the process that people engage in. When, when you are challenged, you tend to sort of look inward and to go inside yourself and to kind of remind yourself of all the reasons why you believe what you believe. You bring up all of the counter arguments, you rationalize, you do all the things that people do to try to remain unconvinced. Um, you know, people have a strong motivation here not to change their minds, partly because of these social factors we're talking about. And so they engage in all kinds of things. I shouldn't say that, I should say we engage in all kinds of processes to avoid information that, that challenges us or to um, shut it down or to argue against it, to, you know, um, devalue the sources from which it comes. Hmm. Um, so we think that that is reflective of what, what we're seeing in the brain there is reflective of those kinds of processes. In some cases, when people are presented with evidence against their beliefs, their beliefs actually get stronger. It's called the backfire effect. And th- that's partly because of this process where we kind of shore up our defenses when we're challenged. And so we can end up with even stronger defenses than we started from, which is totally counterintuitive, but it happens. Well, yeah, and it, the other thing we, is, is it not uh, – actually, just go ahead and then I'll ask the question because I, I want you to finish. Yeah, the other thing that we think is important here is emotion. So uh, one of the things we see is that um, when people activate emotional structures in the brain, we looked at two structures that are really important for emotion in the brain. One is called the amygdala, and the other is called the insular cortex. The amygdala is really important when people uh, feel all kinds of different emotions, particularly responding to threats and fears. And the insular cortex processes a lot of information from the inside of our body that helps us to feel things, like, you know, when your heart is beating fast or you you, um, feel something inside your body. And the more people activated these brain structures and being challenged, the more stubborn they were, the less open they were to information. And that makes sense to us as well, because we think that this kind of emotional process is is key here, that the more sort of bad you feel, uh, the more negative affect you have when you're challenged, uh, the the less likely you are to change. Hmm. This is so interesting because I'm assuming our brains would have evolved this way or, you know, formed this way for a survival instinct or method. But in a way, if we're if we're actually if if we're not getting the accurate data and if we're having kind of the opposite of uh, or a backfire effect, is it not? It's actually counterintuitive to to survival, isn't it? Well, if you think about yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, the brain's uh, main function and the thing the brain is designed to do is, is to defend ourselves, to keep ourselves safe. Um, and if you think of what the self is that the brain is keeping safe, well, for one thing, we want to keep our bodies safe. You know, we want to be away from a bear that's trying to eat us. On the other hand, once the psychological self comes into play, you have something else to defend. And the brain has, has another thing to keep safe, which is your own identity. Right? Mm. And if one of these beliefs is part of that identity, then it's kind of like yourself is extending to that. And, and we think that's going on here. That the brain is treating these beliefs as if it's part of the self that needs to be defended. Interesting. Yeah. So we really are protecting our identity, even to the point that we're willing to to not see certain data or 
to to actually go the opposite of the data and just go more on emotion. Yeah, that's right. And and while you're right that it seems counterproductive to um, be so inflexible and to not be able to incorporate new data into our beliefs, on the other hand, we probably don't want to be completely um, uh, along the other extreme where any new piece of information comes in, we suddenly change our mind. Right, we sway. Probably some... Yeah, there's probably some value to having like a, a certain stability to our beliefs. How fascinating. So in, in the study, um, <laughs> you put people in an imaging, um, I guess, machine, and then you you would take on their beliefs and you would see how their brain would light up. Yeah, that's exactly right. The technology we use is called uh, functional MRI, and it allows us to track um, blood oxygenation changes that relate to brain activity. And so we can see... Uh, where there are changes in brain activity that relate to what the person is doing uh, psychologically. And that's sort of how we uh, use, uh, that's the technology we use to look at this thing. And we get a totally different kind of information from doing that than you would get if you just kind of ask people what's what's going on in their minds when they do something. Huh. What, when else, when, when do you see this happening other than political uh, topics? Uh, is it any time someone's questioning a belief or um, are there certain beliefs that it just didn't fire as hard? Yeah, so we compare these, you know, these political beliefs to people's non-political beliefs in, in this study. We've done some other studies with uh, religious beliefs in the past, where we looked at people who had strong religious beliefs, both Christians and, and atheists, actually. Um, and we found some of the same brain regions that were activated in this political study were also activated in that study when people thought about their religious beliefs and what they be- what they believed about about God and religion. And we've also looked at what people. Uh, uh, are doing when they think about other kinds of um, things that are really important to them, different kinds of uh, moral issues that, that people uh, hold dear. We call these things protected values. They're things that are so important to us that we're, we're basically willing to sacrifice almost anything to protect them. And then they don't have to be political. It could be uh, religious beliefs. It could be beliefs about, uh, about, um, about the world or about your family or about certain kind of moral principles that you're just not willing to compromise on. Hmm. And uh, we think that whenever people are thinking about these special kinds of beliefs, that these, these special things are going on in our brains. Talk about maybe what – so you see this, I guess, being manifested anytime we have two parties or two people fighting about an issue? Just – I mean, is is it that simple? Like what we're seeing now, kind of uh, post-Trump election – Democratic Democrats can't believe it. They're angry. Republicans are fighting or, you know, Trump supporters are fighting. Is is it I guess, is it a useless conversation once we have two people fighting in their brains like this? I think often these conversations are useless. I mean, certainly in my experience, they, they often have been. Um, but, and that, you know, that's what that's kind of what led us to do this research. We, we spent so much time uh, arguing about these things and talking about these things with people really close to us. And it just seems so rare to actually witness someone change their mind on one of these topics. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily useless. I think we can, you know, part of the reason we want to do this research is to understand how this, how these conversations can be better. You know, mm. we think if, if we can sort of understand how we work, we can maybe come up with ways to have these conversations that are more productive. Um, you know, one, one thing we, we've learned from this is that emotion is important. And so if we can think of ways to keep ourselves less emotional in, in the context of these conversations, that's something that might help make them go better. Yeah, I know a lot of the literature around like emotional intelligence is pretty much doing whatever you can to not ignite the amygdala. 
You know, once right. so maybe if you could have the conversation in a way that we don't engage the amygdala too early or I mean I guess I'm assuming the more direct you were about the confrontation, the faster the amygdala would fire. Is is that did you see that? Yeah, I mean what we were looking at here was kind of a full frontal assault where we just came right out and said, you Boom. know, this is why you're wrong. Um, and, and that just doesn't work yeah. on these topics. It does work in, in certain uh, in certain topics where information is more important to people than what they value. But when it comes to these kinds of values, that kind of full frontal assault is totally counterproductive. And uh-huh. so we've we, we got to find a different way of doing it. Mm, good stuff. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Jonas Kaplan, who is an assistant research at the Brain and Creativity Institute at the University of Southern California. He's also the co-director of the Dorensif Cognitive Neuroimaging Center at the USC. Uh, and as a cognitive neuroscientist, he's helping us understand our identity and what happens when it gets engaged or questioned and how it, how it may actually kick in some some pretty unpredictable responses, yet uh, the, the same responses that lead to so many of our fights politically and in the world. Stick with us. Helping you understand your brain. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are speaking with Dr. Jonas Kaplan. He is the uh, an assistant research professor at, at the Brain and Creativity uh, Institute at the University of Southern California. His interests include neurobiology and uh, how they impact your deeply held beliefs and values. Dr. Jonas Kaplan, thank you again for being with us. Sure. So as part of your study, you're talking about you put people in functional MRIs, fMRIs, and you um, pretty directly confronted them on their some deeply held beliefs about politics and about just life in general, uh, who invented the telephone or whatever. And um, did you notice, and is it possible as people because one of the things you're saying is that parts of our brain light up. We get diff- We get more blood flowing to certain parts of our brain when somebody starts questioning our beliefs. Are there some people that are more able to handle like a full frontal attack than others? Do, are there some that can manage the blood flow? Is that something that humans can actually do or is this just nature kicking in? That's a, that's a really good question. Uh, well, first of all, we, we did see a lot of variation among the people that we, we looked at. So uh, some people – uh, were were very very defensive and activated the amygdala and insula very very strongly and those people uh, were the, were the least uh, open to our arguments. And, you know, I, I don't want to um, say that those people were were necessarily doing something wrong. Right. right. The the information that we gave them was was also always not entirely true, so they they were right to be skeptical. Um, but we also know that uh, emotion regulation is something that we can learn to be better at. Um, you know, we can we can practice it, and through through various techniques, we can we can learn to be better at, at managing our kind of automatic emotional responses to things. So, I don't think this is something that's, that's necessarily fixed in place. And there's definitely some some biological uh, drives at, at work there, and we mm. have to deal with our own biology. But I, I don't think we should think of ourselves as as being a, as sort of enslaved to it. Is it? Um... It's interesting too. I mean, I'm assuming. Did, did you see anybody that really lost it? Uh, lost it in terms of uh, getting really upset. Yeah. Um, in the study. Um, not, 
You know, not really. Um, you know, some people, uh, when they came out, they, they said that they, they weren't feeling so great about being challenged. But, uh, but people didn't, you know, we trapped them inside this little tube. And the <laughs> so they didn't have the option of, you know, counting their fists or anything. Anything so interesting as that? That's interesting. Does um, I mean, I, I I just look at it a lot. I work with couples that you know argue, and and you can almost see this same thing kicking into a traditional couples argument about identity. Um, like, are you going to provide, or are you not going to provide, and you're not being a good wife, or whatever? I mean, I'm assuming that a lot of it, a lot of our just day to day arguments might begin with this very simple questioning of our identity. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, in, in that work that you've done, have you noticed anything that makes that you know any conditions that that lead people to be more open and receptive to to uh, changing their minds? You know, one thing I've actually found is slowing it down, slowing the process down, and I try to do whatever I can to have them, um, you know, paraphrase, you know, just reflective listening puts. It seems like it puts people in their prefrontal cortex, and I don't know if being in the prefrontal cortex. Get it, I don't know if it keeps them out of the amygdala or if it mitigates the amygdala, but there's something about making them basically paraphrase what their partner's saying, not just react to it, that seems to 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 change the tone or the tenor of this conversation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and that's partly what we see in um, research on on emotion regulation when we give people emotions emotional uh, stimuli, we ask them to kind of. I think of different ways to conceive of those stimuli to make them less emotional. We do see yeah. interactions between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex in those situations. But you can see if you're if if you can see if it's like coming at you in fast, you know, you know, firings of of uh, assault on you. All of the sudden, it's overwhelming, and then your brain lights up, and then it's just name calling. Right, and as soon as you're defensive, it's very hard to get out of that. Mindset. Yeah. Do you see that in the fMRIs? You can can you can see the brain almost heating up in those areas then? Yeah, that's that's basically what we try to do. And you know, we don't we don't see it in real time. That takes a lot of data right. processing after the fact. Um, at least uh, with with the current technologies, it's difficult to see things in real time. So it's not particularly uh, useful at this point for you know live couples counseling. Um, yeah, but it, it's pretty good for for learning what's going on in the brain when, when these things are happening. Is is it a physiological? I mean, are are brains different of the people that struggle with this more, or is it just kind of a psychological? It's more interpreted. Uh, it's probably both. I mean, you know, from a, a neuroscience perspective, uh, everything in our psychology is ultimately rooted in our brain, and you know, any any time you have. A, a change in your mind that's accompanied by a change in the brain. And those are, you know, really two sides of the same point. So I, I don't really think of it as, as one or the yeah. other, but I, I think of it as sort of two different ways of looking at the same thing. Um, and, you know, you can, by, by changing your psychology, you're, you're changing your brain. And, and so, again, it's important, I think, not, not for us to think of because something is rooted in the brain that it's somehow fixed and, and unchangeable. Right. We can, we can definitely change our brains. Where do you see you're going to take the, the research going forward now? Well, we'd like to learn a lot more about uh, the, uh, how emotion is involved in this process. We're doing some work now to look at uh, how the physiology of the body responds when, when people are challenged. Uh, that's, that's one line of research. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, we'd like to expand this to wider groups of people. So we looked at uh, people with strong liberal beliefs in our study because they were, they were very easy for us to find around here. 
Um, but yeah. there's good reason to believe that liberals and conservatives are, are not identical. No, you ought to come to BYU. We could do some conservatives. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, we'd love to do that. And we, we might not find the same thing. I mean, I, I think there are probably some general principles there. Um, but we know, for example, that uh, there's some evidence that conservatives uh, often even have a different amygdala than, than liberals. So really? I think it's really, yeah. Um, Talk about that. Well, there's there's some evidence that um, the the amygdala can be larger in people with conservative orientations, and and that and they they can respond to threat differently. Mm. Um, part of part of conservatism involves sort of valuing um, keeping the status quo, yeah. um, and so it, it makes sense that that people don't respond to threats the same way. That's interesting. Uh, so, that, which is why, again, yeah, that's why you might see somebody that's you know liberally or o- liberal or open minded to. Things that conservatives might see as a threat, but it's really their brain. Just if it, if they did have a smaller amygdala, they have less response to it uh, to certain things as threats. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Hmm. And uh, the other the other uh, thing line of research I think is really important is for us to try and start testing out some of these uh, things we can do to um, make people more open minded. Under what conditions can we um, create circumstances where people are more receptive to evidence? Can we kind of do things to damp down the backfire effect. For example, if we give people training in emotion regulation, does that help people to respond to these kinds of challenges in, in a more rational and less emotional way? Yeah. No, and I think that would be – it's just so valuable. It's, it's amazing how much we're learning um, and yet how much we still have to learn about this. It's Yeah, I mean when it comes to the brain, it, we just only know the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more to learn. Do you um, – what would you sense kind of as, as we wrap up, what would you sense or suggest we do if we want to, um, you know, decrease our reactivity to threats of identity? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, one, one thing is that I think we want to be aware of what our identity is and what, what beliefs are important for our identity so that we can – um, be prepared for for our own reactions when when those things are challenged. I think a lot of times a lot of this uh, goes unexamined for us, and we're not really um, clear that that certain beliefs and values are, are so important for our identity until they're challenged, and then we, we find ourselves reacting in this way. So that's one thing is just sort of reflect on on uh, how these things are important to us, and then the second thing is just to be aware of our own uh, emotions and to see what we can do to uh, remain calm in these situations and to uh, try to talk to people from a, a position of uh, empathy instead of from a position of defensiveness. Mm. Yeah, try to understand their story. I mean, by the way, by showing empathy and understanding, you could maybe talk about harder issues without igniting or over-igniting the amygdala. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that, that can help is to try to connect to the underlying values that we know that the people we're talking to have rather than just kind of, um, you know, quibbling on the, on the surface level facts. Mm. We do it all the time. Dr. Jonas Kaplan, thank you so much for your great research there at USC. And uh, and keep it up, man. We need to learn more about why the brain shuts us down and lights us up. Excellent stuff, folks. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll do a little Coach's Corner as well as some other uh, learning. It's straight ahead. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends. Hey, a little coach's corner for you. Um, I, again, I coach a lot of people. A lot of couples come in and see me as well as people struggling with anxiety or depression or you name it, ADHD, uh, guilt, other issues. And so one of the things that I try to work a lot on is and, – and in the show, uh, our last guest and our next guest next hour, we're going to be talking a lot about emotions and emotional management. But there is – there are a few tricks uh, to emotional management that I think can help you take control of this fight-or-flight part of your brain. The fight-or-flight part of your brain, remember, is it's there to protect you. But as we learned, the protection is just as much for your physiology, your body, as it is for your psychology or your identity. So our body, our, our fight or flight instincts will kick in just as strong and just as aggressively for the need to protect, you know, don't make fun of my high school as it will for, um, you know, I'm going to kill you. It's, they're just their threats. And it's it's not like the body can always distinguish, especially because the amygdala is so wired to fight or flight instantly. So some rules that we teach in my program, um, again, and, and uh, Dr. Kaplan hit it perfectly, one of them is just to start noticing your thinking. The more aware you are and the more aware we all become of our own thinking and how we react to certain events, how we see certain things, the more abilities we have to handle these events. Again, it doesn't eliminate the fact that I have issues, but as soon as I know that, boy, I'm really sensitive to certain things. For example, I know a bigger trigger for me is um, is more when my kids, like, question my authority. And when they question my authority, that's more likely to set me off than um, – or my ex- my experience than almost anything else they can do. They can call me a name. They can say whatever they want. But when, you know, when I say something like, you know what, okay, time for bed. You guys got to go to bed. And they're like, well, mom said we didn't have to. Boy, what has your mom got to do with this? And off we go. So what triggers you? We want to start to identify what the triggers are. And, and generally, I, I've found that we tend to be triggered by any time we question if we're capable If you're questioning my capability, if you're questioning if I'm loved, if I I feel what you're doing is attacking me in a way that I feel unlovable or when I feel unsafe, those tend to be the three biggest triggers I found. Um, Lack of safety, lack of capability, like I'm just not cutting it anymore, or lack of lovability. So think about it. What triggers you? to you know to go off what what's the thing that most pushes you to just walk out of an, a discussion with your wife is it that every time she brings something up do you feel like she's questioning if you're capable if you're good enough to do this kind of stuff do you question if you're loved or do you question um you know if you're going to be safe physically socially emotionally spiritually financially so once you start to become more aware then you can start to understand how your triggers go off and what works for you? I mean, I found a lot of times just breathing, taking a deep breath helps a lot to be able to manage my reactions. Um, another thing I found is a great tool is anything you can do to get into your what I call your higher brain. Um, one fast way to do that, by the way, is math. If If you would take a million and count down from one million by 17s, 
I'm going to bet you won't fight about whatever your wife is bringing up. Right? And one reason is because if you have to go into your high brain and start making sense of something that's more complicated, then all of a sudden you don't have time to just get into your low brain and fight or flight. One of the ways I do this, and there's a really interesting um, parallel to it in the court system. If you notice in courts, they have a lot of rules and a lot of uh, ways that you approach the bench, the ways that you, you're allowed to say what you want to say in the courtroom. They have so much structure and so many rules to, to uh, obey and so much just protocol for how you handle the courtroom that I think the protocol itself keeps the people from fighting or flighting and reacting to each other. I mean, think about it. You have people in a court system that truly do not like each other. They hate each other, but there's so much process that that is demanding their brain power. Otherwise, they lose the case, right? They, they'll get the judge mad at them, so they follow the protocol. And when you follow the protocol, the process is nice and slow and methodical, and the protocol keeps you from reacting, overly reacting to each other in the courtroom. I found the same is true in our in our relationship. So we teach our couples when we're teaching them how to have a have to have a serious conversation that might normally set us off that there's some protocols we're going to follow. We're going to learn to recognize each other emotion each other's emotions. I call this getting real. Recognize the emotion, explore the story behind it. Behind every emotion there's a story. And if I can let the person that's I'm, that we're, I'm struggling with, that I'm arguing with, share their story without me jumping in and without me reacting to their emotion, and I explore their story, I'll be able to hear where they're really starving. Deep down in the story, you'll hear where they're really being affected. You'll hear if they have a lovable issue, if they have a capable issue, if they have a safety issue. I call that stuff the starved stuff. So we recognize their emotion. You seem upset. We explore the story. Tell me what's going on. And I attend to what they're saying. I really listen to where they're hurting. And then before I do all of those three things before I try to ever lift the conversation. And to lift the conversation, I try to do what I call – it's a very simple rule that I call the 80-20 rule. I believe in every discussion you have with another human being, 80% of what they're saying you agree with. I agree that the world is complicated today. I agree that, uh, you know, we didn't take care of America like we should have. I admit that uh, we, you know, I've been part of the problem. I accept. I, I affirm. And you just you go with them wherever they are, where you can go with them. And then you share your side. And I have a different side. And then you can tell your side. And I don't think that we should, you know, make everybody feel unsafe by saying certain things politically. Does that make sense? So we recognize emotion, we explore, we attend, and we lift conversations. They're skills, and they're skills you can learn. I'm teaching them every day, and you know what? You learn You learn to do it. This stuff works. Um, it, it's not a silver bullet, but it's a skill, and you can learn to do it, and the more you do it, the easier it gets, I think, for all of us. So great learnings, I think. Uh, that's why we do the show, to give you the tools, the information you need to live healthier, happier lives. We'll take a break. Stick with us. When we come back, we'll continue the journey of emotions. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Hour number two of the love fest we call the Matt Townsend Show. This is the program where we try to get uh, the latest, greatest thinkers and researchers on the program to help you understand your own human experience. It ain't easy. It ain't an easy thing to do today. We're going to be making sense of your emotions. Dr. Frank Ninavaji will be joining us. Uh, Frank's been on the show many times, probably one of the smartest men I think I know, a Yale psychiatrist. And uh, I'm telling you, he's going to be enlightening us about emotions and, uh, you know, the importance of our own emotions. <sighs> they just get us. We feel things in our hearts, deep, deep, deep in our hearts. The kiss of a cute little grandbaby. The spilt milk on the carpet. The scratch of the face of a grandparent who was just trying to help. All part of life. All part of- oh, sorry. When they spit up and it hits you on your brand new suit. Yes. It's wonderful. When you have a brand new car and the truck in front of you is dropping little rocks, slowly sandblasting your hood. All these things make you want to just wring the neck of another human being. Today on The Matt Townsend Show, we will be teaching you how not to take your emotion out on others and instead... Turn that frown upside down and smile that frown away. So do we, do we repress the emotion, just drive it down deep and don't address it? Is no. That no. Oh. One must feel their emotions, sensei. Okay. I think uh, that was a superhero quote. You got, off, you got that off of the uh, fortune that's on the board here. Yeah. One must feel your emotions. By the way, went uh, – this is how this is how bad of a grandparent we've been as we've been tending our grandchild took her to sushi. Uh, there's not a lot of food at a sushi bar for an 18 month old baby. Except the beans, maybe like some edamame. Uh, no, she's not into beans. Hmm. You know what she loved? Rice, sticky rice. Oh yeah, and avocado. Now, as a child, did you ever just love pounding avocados? No. No, texture problem. Yeah. But this kid loves avocados and sticky rice. By the way, a couple days later, guess what we found out? It constipates you. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, we ruined our baby. But we handed our cute little grandbaby off to the other grandparents. And right before she fell on a walk with my wife and skinned her knee. Mm, So you damaged goods. We damaged our grandbaby. Wow. Well, We're so sorry. Why I bring this up? Because today is baby day. Today's the day you get to celebrate the cute little babies, many of which you were a baby. Uh, Many of you were babies, you know. Most of us. I'm pretty sure almost all of you. Some people were born grown up. That's true. And uh, the babies that you have your car seats for in the back back of your cars, which I think is so cute. It's kind of law. It's kind of the law. Yeah, you get arrested if you don't. So. Yeah. So we'll be talking babies all day today. Also, um, we'll be giving you a recipe or at least the, we'll tell you what kind of pizza is guaranteed to induce labor, according mm. to one mom. I'm listening. Actually, it's multiple moms. 
Is it? But it's not like proven. It's just sort of... It's the old castor oil pizza. Yeah. Nothing induces but labor like that. The, the the pizza establishment is doing nothing to stop this, uh, this sort mi- of this rumor mi- and yeah. you know trend to continue because they're seeing sales. So. Speaking of castor oil, yes, my wife's doctor begged her not to drink castor oil. Really? Begged her. So, but all the old wives' tells say no. You just throw back some castor oil and boom. Right, but he uh, doesn't want to deal with any potential. Yeah. He's, yeah. Yeah, he's probably brilliant because, you know, there's new research, I'm sure, about the effects of castor oil and, by the way, avocado. I don't think he needs the research and because he's dealt with women who have had castor oil and has had to deal with the... Uh, the aftermath. Yes. We'll hey, call it that. We'll call it the aftermath. By the way, um, we'll also give you some ideas if you're tired of walking, some other things you might want to steal, perhaps a forklift. Hey, there you go. We'll get to that. All right. Plus, if you receive duplicate tax refunds, we suggest you only cash one of them. Mm. Right. Unless you want to owe the IRS. The whole concept of it's their fault, so we'll just cash them both. Yeah. We'll come back to haunt you, so don't do that. They won't take it. So we'll get to all that fun straight ahead, but first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's up? The turmoil at Fox News Channel has claimed another victim. The network said Monday that Bill Shine, the network's co-president and longtime lieutenant of ousted Fox News CEO Roger Ailes, is out. He is stepping down. His departure follows the firing of top personalities Bill O'Reilly and Ailes, both amid charges that they had harassed women. Shine was not accused of harassment, but there were questions about what he knew about the network's workplace atmosphere, for the and the years the problems were going on and what he did to not stop it or try to yeah. curtail things and Fox has lost their shine. They have lost their shine was the headline yesterday. The NFL draft may be three straight days of names being called out from a podium, but it's a ratings boon for ESPN and the NFL Network. This year's draft drew an average of 4.6 million combined TV viewers for the two networks over three days. That number is second the second biggest ever behind 2014. The biggest numbers to go along with that event, the year's draft. Was, this year's draft was more of a spectacle than years past, taking place on a giant stage on the rocky steps at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Usually it's in a stadium. They did it at Radio City Music Hall for years. Now they're moving it around. Cities That's are good. bidding Rot- for oh, the show. are they really? So now they had it on the steps of the Rocky Museum. And huh. they had a, at one point there was a, a famous Dallas Cowboy player out there reading off the next draft pick, and he's provoking Philadelphia Eagle fans by reminding them that while they haven't won a championship since oh. the 60s, the Cowboys have six titles or whatever. It was. It just It was really, really great. So, yeah, lots of fun. There was an orangutan, I think, making draft picks. It was a, it was a great NFL draft. Oh, interesting. Draft of watching, <laughs> essentially, somebody come up, read a name, and sit down. But how it's, do you make that interesting? But They're see, this finding is what the NFL does best. This is how you keep people wanting right. to watch your programming. Um, in other news, if organizers of the music festival turned disaster known as the Fry Festival had any hope of making a quick buck, their strategy may be backfiring in a big way. Rolling Stone reports that an attendee slash survivor has filed a $100 million class action lawsuit against festival creators Billy McFarlane and rapper Ja Rule, as Matt, you know, his real name is Jeffrey Atkins. Yeah. The complaint ticks off a by-now-familiar litany of complaints about the supposedly luxurious getaway in the Bahamas that saw everything that could go wrong do so in spectacular fashion. Uh, one big problem for McFarland and Ja Rule was their well-heeled clientele can afford big-name lawyers. 
Oh boy! Tickets for like ten thousand dollars for group Are of you four serious? seats. It Come was just on. get away, go to the Bahamas, all kinds of concerts, festival, and they got there. There was no food. Travel was you couldn't get off the island. Uh, there were tents set up, and they all blew away. It just everything went wrong. People were stranded. Now they're suing. Okay. So the tip is, if you're going to do a concert, make sure you don't have people that have enough money to sue you for money you don't have. So, But they said, no big deal. We're going to come back next year and make it bigger and better than ever. Hmm. So the whole ordeal was, uh, let's see, uh, it was compared to The Hunger Games or Lord of the Flies. Really? Yeah, it was pretty bad. It, it went off on social media all weekend. It was just kind of a thing. But Where it, was I? You were not on social media. Because I was trying to get my baby to go to the bathroom and finally a scottish man is extremely lucky to be alive after spending more than 32 hours at sea with only his surfboard matthew bryce 22 spotted by a coast guard helicopter some 13 miles off the coast of scotland around 7 30 p.m monday after the uh after first jumping in the waves almost a day and a half earlier bryce is from glasgow had had told family members he was planning to surf at the beach Around 9 a.m. Sunday, he hit the waves about two and a half hours later. When he hadn't returned after several hours, family members became uh, concerned, called the police. Coast Guard rescue teams from several bases come, uh, combed the shorelines near where he probably where, where they thought he was surfing. But just as hope and daylight were fading Monday, a Coast Guard helicopter spotted Bryce with his bright orange surfboard 13 miles off the coast. Oh where a rip current had apparently carried him. He was hypothermic but conscious. He was airlifted to the hospital. Coast Guard rep says his ability to stay with a surfboard helped save him along with all the right clothing, including his thick neoprene suit. Unbelievable. And you, what do you do? You don't even know which way to, to row, right? Because well, could he even see land anymore at 13th miles out? Probably not. And then he's hypothermic, so. And then the uh. rough seas. Yeah. He's just fighting it the whole way. But what a stud to be there. Wow. And the orange surfboard helped. I would have given up by, I don't know, dinner. Then you would have become dinner. I know. Keep your feet on the board. That's what I learned. Wow. Cool hero there. A little hero story. Hey, a little uh, tax information for you. 500 Rhode Island residents have received duplicate tax refund checks totaling now $364,000. A state official in Rhode Island says human error is to blame. The checks were sent in a group of refunds mailed Friday. The checks people received are identical, but only one of the two checks can be cashed. If you got two checks and they're identical, only cash one of them. Ah, come on! Tell me about it. The Department of Administration Policy Director Allison Rogers says people can cash one check and return the other to the state, Hmm. along with a brief explanation. It's all fun and games till you cash two checks, and then all of a sudden, Rhode Island's after you. And nothing worse than having Rhode Island nipping at your heels. Do you think they're underestimated because they're so small? Yes. Okay. But they carry a big punch. Apparently. When you cash two of their checks. So people in Rhode Island, watch out for that. Uh, one of the things we've been doing on the show is a lot of our producers are now uh, graduating or um, taking summer internships. Taking summer internships. Or, yeah. They're just experiencing growing pains. We have been in need of replacing some of these great contributors. And so I've, uh, I've assigned Jeffrey uh, Liam Simpson to – Research some people. He's he's and he's now testing some people on air. One we had was Bob Moss, who has a plant show. 
to do plant therapy. He must be at the top of your list because he's – I think he's the only one you remember. Well, it's, it's because it, it's very close to my favorite uh, PBS painter, Bob Ross. So I remember Bob Moss because I don't know if they're related in any way. but You can watch that on Netflix, by the way. I love – I love Bob Ross. Let's put some clouds in Just here. Just put a little mountain right here. Mm. <laughs> Love Bob. He's my man. So he's the guy that made me want to get into radio and television. And he, he and Walter Cronkite. No, I never knew Walter. He and Tom Brokaw. Really? Not really. Okay. You're just searching for a name. Got you. Go uh, on. Um, so talk to me, Jeffrey. We've got another person, another contributor possibility here. Yeah, so we had one idea for a show that you weren't crazy about. Uh, it was a sitcom called The IT Guy. Yeah. Just the mishaps of a very inept, yeah, not, goofy uh, not IT very guy. smart and, yeah. Right. And, you know, there are plenty of shows out there about people that are not very good at their jobs. Right. So maybe that's why you decided yeah, to I've pass seen that. on that. I've seen that one. Uh, this one is uh, – it kind of – Crosses to it meshes two worlds okay. that you would never consider to mesh. Great, so or this, mix. they could we could have a segment of their show yeah. every week. And you mentioned speaking of taxes because yeah. you just did the story on taxes. Uh, it's a it's the tax world mixed with westerns. Hmm. And the name of the show is simply the Tax Man. Okay. So here it is. Keep an open Here's mind. Here's a test. Okay. Keep an open mind. Test of the tax man. There's an old saying that goes, cheat death, and sooner or later, death will come looking for you. But in the town of deduction, there was a different saying. Cheat on your taxes, and sooner or later, the tax man will come looking for you. You see... The town of deduction was full of all types of scoundrels. The type of men that would deduct a personal lunch expense and not think twice about it. Yes, sir. The town was ripe with illegal and downright unethical behavior. And it looked like things would stay that way forever. Until the day the tax man rode into town. Now, um, down at the old oh, kid's place, sorry. folks was trying to cool off. But on this particular day, even the ice cubes in their drinks was hot. It was the kind of day a man wished he could be a snake, just so his blood would be cold. And when the saloon doors swung wide open... Revealing Evan the Evader Evanston, things started to heat up even more. Bartender, give me a ginger ale on the rocks. Shucks, I'm celebrating. Drinks all around. <laughs> yeah. Hey, bartender, you know why I'm celebrating? I'll tell you why. I just hired a Chinaman to do some mining for me. Only I hired him as a contractor instead of an employee. <laughs> that way, he's got to pay his own Social Security and Medicare. 
with the money I'll save, I can take a trip to France and finally try out some of those French fries I've been hearing so much about. <laughs> Shoot, maybe I'll even write it off as a business expense. <laughs> Don't pack your bags just yet, Evanston. It was the tax man, a man the people of deduction feared more than anything. That's part one of the episode. So you have to wait until tomorrow to get part two. There's going to be some great tax lingo being thrown at you tomorrow that you may not understand. So you could learn something and be entertained and be on the edge of your seat because it is quite thrilling. Hmm. I'm not seeing it. Well, you haven't heard part two well, I did hear part one, and it's actually made me not really want to hear part two. Well, it's already on the schedule for tomorrow. I don't know if this show fits our, you know, our. It doesn't fit what we're doing with our show. I guess is don't you saying. don't you ever have guests that uh, talk about taxes? Yeah, but they don't like they don't put down people based on demog- demographics. They don't call people Chinamen. Well, this guy's not very literate. Well, I guess this is also topical he's not, to like not what, very cultured. years ago. He's not very wise or smart. I just I, I think I think there might be other shows that might like the storytelling part of this more on but it, BYU radio. But it not. takes it takes place, like you said, about a hundred years ago. Yeah, but don't we need like tax advice from today? Uh it's all the same. And don't it's get never me wrong. Changed. <laughs> That's true, actually. Don't get me wrong, I love I love a good tax evader story, eh. but uh, I don't know. Let, let's let's think this one through because so far Bob Moss is still at the top of my list, <laughs> and Bob's the guy that just does plant therapy. So we're not having a lot of luck. If any of you out there in listener land would like to propose a show, mm. just just email us. Go go to our Twitter page at Doctor Matt Show. Give us your latest and greatest, your proposals for other – not shows, but other content that we could be doing on the show. Uh, give us a call, one eight five five chat byu Maybe we'll have our producers pick up those calls. And you could give us ideas, one eight five five chat byu What – I mean, other than the tax man. So are you telling me that I wasted 48 hours in all those pitch meetings well, listening so, I mean, to I mean, all these got, people I know go got on and on and on? Up. You've got a lot more lined up, so maybe not. Maybe we'll find a, a diamond in the rough. But uh, I'm not into I'm not the tax advice mixed with the Western. It's I don't know. Maybe. Oh, come on! I know. Anyway, let's get to emotions. Up next, Doctor Frank Ninavaji will be joining us. My, one of my favorite psychiatrists from Yale is going to be on the show, helping us understand our own emotions. Excellent stuff. Straight ahead, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. You know, emotional thinking is our first language. Emotions are the first language of all of us. It's universal. Dr. Ninavaji 
who has been a guest on our show many times, he's one of our favorite contributors, is with us today to examine the importance of understanding emotions as a tool and how they can be applied to benefit our lives, our relationships. He has a book coming out, uh, due out, I believe, in August, Making Sense of Emotion, Innovating Emotional Intelligence. And I'm honored again to have you on the show, Dr. Frank Ninavaji. Thank you for being with us. You're welcome, and I'm honored as well, as usual. Thank this you is, so much. This is one of, every time I see your name on the docket, I'm like, yes, now <laughs> Frank can take us on a journey of emotions. And I don't, I really don't know how many people, um, I, what's the word, um, understand emotion like you do. You, you mention it as a biomental perspective. And I've, I've always, I'm always enamored with that idea. Just help us understand um, what, what is a biomental idea. Okay. Well, um, I'll just sort of preface that by saying this. The um, forward to the book was written by my new chief of child psychiatry at Yale, Linda Mays. She's an MD, and she's world-renowned for her work on infants and young children. <clears throat> so she... Uh, was gracious enough to read the entire book and write a very wonderful, charming, perceptive, highly intelligent, very favorable forward to the book. And one point she made of many was that Dr. Ninavaji has a knack for using and inventing terms and terminology which are absolutely new, if not, quote-unquote, innovative, which have never been used in psychiatry or child psychiatry in the past, yet give life and depth to what he means and what he wants to convey. Exactly. And uh, yeah, it is. It is, and, yeah, and you're so myself, good at it. Wow. And by the way... Uh-huh. the sound suggests the sound. She hit it on the head... And years ago, that word, I actually coined that term, that word, biomental, probably 10, 12 years ago. And as they say, I was so fascinated with it, I wrote a book about it, <laughs> Biomental totally Child Development, in order to emphasize how important the actual physicality, the material body is, and not merely the um, sense of the child's words or only behavior, try to not seeing any individual, especially children and infants, separate from the concrete reality they present, not seeing ourselves as separate from who we are concretely incarnated in the world. We are one, or maybe the aspiration, the value, the prime value, is to realize our oneness and our integrity, and to aspire to be in, uh, uh, to have integrity, to, to meld all our thinking, or all our feeling with all our actions. Hmm. And then we, we achieve integrity as a human being honorableness in our performance. And that's actually another uh, phrase that I kind of coined when I was writing the new book on um, making sense of emotion, innovating emotional intelligence. 
I felt that everybody who has been talking about emotional intelligence left out the key, the key, hitting, you know, hitting the nail on the head. Right. And that is the bottom line of emotional intelligence is what I call emotion performance utilization. What you do as a result of thinking and feeling, understanding your emotions, what you do, how you behave, how it shows up in your behavior. It's how the emotion drives your behavior. Emotion performance utilization. Yeah, Yeah, so you brought out, I mean, two things here, really. You're saying biomental would mean body-mind you're a whole you're a whole being so we can't just check right. your physiology or your psychology they integrate they work together and even right. spiritual as we've talked about That's in the past right. which and we need integrity between those areas um and then you and then another one is emotion performance utilization because when it, when we talk about emotional intelligence there's been books about it daniel goleman some of the great books uh, in the past 10 15 20 years about it but one of the keys you're saying that everyone's missing out on is it's not enough to just recognize your emotion or understand your emotion it's how your emotions create your behavior or drive behavior utilize By their fruits ye shall know them hmm. Right. Faith without good works is dead. Right. And that's what everybody has missed. And you know how I can't, one of the ways I knew it, it was pounded in my head when I was researching the last book, Making Sense of Emotion, and looking at how <clears throat> the men at Yale, the researchers, and even Daniel Goleman, and then there is an Israeli um, researcher and writer, Bar, uh, Bar-On, B-A-R-O-N, who's very well known yeah. uh, on uh, emotional intelligence. They have measurement scales to measure emotional intelligence, but they all omit the performance component. Hmm. They all omit performance and behavior in how they measure it. And I thought to myself, how can you do that? Hmm. Because that's where it's at. Well, that's and as a psychiatrist, exactly isn't that where you start? I mean, you you're, you sit in your in the hospital, the parents bring their children in, and they're usually complaining about behavior, aren't yes. they? Or performance. So you that's start exactly there. right. And then you that's have to kind exactly. of re, you have to, what is it, re-engineer and go back to, I guess, the, the biomental side of it. What's driving this behavior? Exactly. What I do... You know, I've said this before, and I'm kind of famous or actually sometimes infamous for this. Almost, almost all, obviously not all, but almost all, which means 98% of all people and families come to me and I say, how may I help you? And they say, I have ADHD. That is definitely the blue plate special of this day and age. Hmm. Yeah, I can't focus. I have ADHD. My child has ADHD. I have it. My husband, his mother, his father, his grandmother, his uh, Neanderthal ancestor. We all have it. You know, <laughs> yeah. they all have it. So when you say I have to re-engineer, I think of it this way. I have to understand that that is what they say and think and possibly believe because of the media. 
hate to be Donald Trump about it, but it is the media. <laughs> you sound like Donald, Frank. That's all you see on the media. Yeah. Because there are dollars and cents involved with the medications right. and the diagnoses. <clears throat> so I, what I do is I take it in, I absorb it, I modulate it, and that's another word I made, I made famous. I, in my book, when yeah. it comes out, I modulate rather than manage. I modulate and then reframe. I reframe. I reframe the whole picture of those people's perception and conception of themselves and their children. And once I do, it's sort of like I tell the residents and the medical students, ADHD, bring it up on your computer. Now press delete. <laughs> Once you press delete, let's go from there. Yeah. Because now we can, now we're cooking with gas. Now we can really look at the biomental individual, the psychological, you know, I don't add the spiritual, but I'm talking about the essence, the quality, yeah. the, the Elan Vital of that child and child within the family, that mother, that father whether they're present or absent, the integrity of the family. Let's look at what's really going on, and let's kind of evaluate it, and then let's formulate a treatment plan. Hmm. Not a medication pill, but a treatment plan that's comprehensive. Do, is that a mistake that we make, Frank, Almost in, in all medicine, where um, we, we like a diagnosis, but and we kind of overlook the complexities of the human, and we just quickly grab the diagnosis because then there's a pill, there's a treatment, and I know in medicine a lot of times those are the money makers, right? It's it's the procedure now we have to do. It's the it's the diagnosis. It's the medicine we're going to sell, but instead we we overlook the whole we we overlook the whole mechanism of of how we got here we look we overlook all the other systems the family the the bio the mental side is that just inherent in our in our medicine today right and that has to a lot to do with the human mind's binary processing which is another mm. i don't know if i yeah. coined that term but i get a lot of leverage out of that because uh, years ago we used to call it splitting but nobody wants to use those uh, terms because they have a psychoanalytic connotation, which again yeah. is considered uh, archaic or passe, but it was throwing out the baby with the bathwater. So I call it binary uh, processing, which means we like to divide things into all black, all white, all good, all bad, and that leads everybody to the tendency to simplify and reduce and find an answer, which really is like the, it's the adult version of the child's quick fix. Mm -hmm. I want instant gratification. So we have to make a diagnosis, find a cause, and then instantly with that cause is the knee-jerk reflex, oh, there's a definite medication, just like with the ADHD. Bring the child in, not doing well at school, rambunctious, a rebel, therefore ADHD, <laughs> and immediately riddle in a stimulant yeah, which, and send them home. Which, I mean, I'm assuming if you put a stimulant on most of us, we would behave differently. We gasoline might get more done. on fire. Right. It's gasoline on fire. 
initially it quells and anesthetizes the situation for two weeks, and then all the negative side effects begin to emerge little by little, step by step, and form no appetite, weight loss, insomnia, Hmm. anxiety, irritability, mood instability, uh, anger eruptions, and so the parent brings the child back, new diagnoses are added, new medications are added, and then you get layer upon layer of complexity, which you didn't even have before, Right. and now you have, and eventually these kids come into residential settings like mine, and I have to kind of... uh, work with, re-engineer, reframe, clean up the situation. Hmm. Boy. I've been doing that for over 20 years. And, and again, it, it goes back to the systemic side of this. You can't, inf- you can't do something to the biology or to the mental side without impacting the whole again. It's a system. And it's a system. Little tweaks here cause long-term repercussions that won't be immediate. They might be, you know, in a year or five. Well, didn't they, wasn't there even a movie and they call it the butterfly effect? Yeah, exactly, right. Yeah. No, totally. There's no action without a reaction. Let's... The people in the 60s and the 70s, it was my generation, <laughs> they used to, you know, get into uh, Oriental, uh, Asian philosophies, and they called it the law of karma. Mm. You know, as ye sow, so shall ye reap. Action, reaction. There's nothing that we can do or even not do that doesn't have consequences. So true. So, so true. We'll take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Frank Ninavaji, medical doctor, assistant clinical professor of child psychiatry at Yale School of Medicine, um, the Child Study Center. He's also a member of the Yale New Haven Community Medical Group and uh, the author of the upcoming book, Making Sense of Emotion, Innovating Emotional Intelligence. Stick with us, folks. When we come back, we're talking emotional intelligence. Up next. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Dr. Frank Ninavaji. He's an assistant clinical professor of child psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine Child Study Center. Uh, also has a wonderful um, blog that I love to read on psychology today called Envy This. Um, probably the smartest man I know. And by far, uh, and also the beauty of Dr. Frank Ninavaji, not only brilliant, but empathic and loving and caring to humans, and uh, that's why you got to love the guy. Dr. Ninavaji today is teaching us about emotional intelligence and his new um, book that is to be released, I believe, in August. Is that right, Frank? Making Sense of Emotion, Innovating Emotional Intelligence. Yes, yes. Hope We hope it'll come out in August because it's, uh, it's all done. The cover is on Amazon. It's a great cover. You know, I paint. Actually, one of my paintings is on the um, article. Hmm. Uh, emotions, uh, yeah. emotions as our mother tongue. I, they, they have so many rules and regulations about what you can put as an illustration. Right. So I use my own stuff. Yeah, because you, you own don't your have own to worry stuff. About it. That's beautiful. But I designed the cover, and uh, I think it's a great cover. It's it it uh, again. I love that word. I learned in uh, 
uh, in high school, Onomatopoeia. Uh-huh. I think the cover suggests the sense of the book. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Is is um, talk about emotional emotions are the primary language of all humans. This is the first, and it's natural, right? We don't have to even cognitively think, but we can emote. Right, right. That is very, very primary. Um, it's uh, believed, and I included a whole. Chapter Four on all the neurology, the bio side of emotions <clears throat> and feeling. It it's believed neurologically in the brain to reside in uh, two almond-shaped structures called the amygdala, and from there, uh, from from the from the sense organs to the flesh to the skin to the to the hormones. Through the nerves, it reaches uh, the amygdala in the brain, and right there in the core of the brain, the amygdala sends out electrical circuitry all over the place, but primarily to the prefrontal lobes. That's kind of right on top of where our eyes are, right there, our forehead. And that's where critical thinking executive functioning or cognition processes everything we experience and that processing is comprehension make making sense of and that's where our emotions are made sense of that's where emotion sensation becomes perception conception and then somehow decision-making occurs, and that gets thrown into the motor parts of the brain, which are more centrally located, and it gets pulsed into action through the, uh, the motor nerves. Pulsed into action. Oh, yeah. So it goes from, it goes from just kind of uh, a, what I just call the kind of the reactive brain, the amygdala, then creates feelings. I guess, which then right. create, then we can, if we want to, and if we pay attention to it in, in the prefrontal cortex, we could make more sense of it. Is that what you're saying? Well, we make, we make uh, intelligence sense. Yeah, intelligence. That's right. a great way to put it. And then, but then meanwhile, it's also pulsating through us, which would eventually lead to behavior, whether the behavior is intelligent or not cognitive and we're aware of it or not. Exactly right. Most behavior, most thought, most um, is, is non-conscious. You, right. In the old days, maybe up until about 20, 25 years ago, we all used the word unconscious. Yeah. But again, it got thrown out because of uh, the accretions of negative uh, implication. So now we use the word non-conscious or the word tacit. All, most behavior, most thinking, and all, most emotion, by definition, emotion is non-conscious. It's a non-conscious process. Right. And in you a way, that, it's supposed to be that way, right? Reaction means. Yeah. Oh, that's it. Yeah, you're just reacting because your brain doesn't have time to go consciously evaluate everything. That's right. You'd be dead or you'd be, you would have missed opportunities or you'd be overwhelmed with the data. Precisely right. 
precisely right. So the more civilized, the more intelligent, the more, uh, so to speak, evolved, the more socialized, the more self-conscious we have become and are as a group and as individuals, the more we're able to bring all these, quote-unquote, primitive, non-conscious, unconscious, tacit, reactive experiences into consciousness, Hmm. and then consciously understand them and make what they call informed decisions. Hmm. And so, really, um, this is like taming the natural man in us. Taming the natural man in us, right. And and I guess, so that's all emotional intelligence would be, is to elevate these, these um, natural responses, these natural reactions to a higher state of being, so and to whatever degree we can do that, so we manage our life in a healthier way. That's right. It's a refinement. It's a refinement. All oh. great systems in human culture have talked about refinement from different perspectives. Yeah. And that's what it's about. It's refining what we already have, the givens. It's refining them and refining them and refining them. You know, ad infinitum, continuously. There's no end to it. Is and I guess as as I as I think about this, um we we really so much of our life is carrying on Emotion is is our emotional our emotional side firing without even us being aware of it. How do we become more aware of our own emotion? Well, there's another word that I use a lot, but I didn't coin it. But I use it in a very specific way, and that word is pause. Pause. In other words, stop and think. Stop and reflect. Pause. Cool your heels. In the old days, they used to say, hey, cool your heels. (laughs) Chill. They used to say, chill. Yeah. Chill out, man. Nowadays, everything is so fast-paced. We keep going and going. It's a frenetic, nonstop society. You know, everybody's worried about their uh, computer speed. Is their mechanism fast enough? No, I want to upgrade. I want faster and faster. We can't keep up with the fastness of the electronics. Yeah. And then, even when the electronics are not near us, which is seldom, but our minds are speeding, so to speak, a mile a minute, really a million miles a minute. And that's what I talk about, the chatter of thoughts. Thoughts, chatter, 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 chatter. They troll the mind, and they get into trouble. You know, idle hands are the devil's workshop. workshop. Right. Right. And those are idle thoughts. They're undirected, unruly. Hmm. And if, in order to grasp and get hold of, get a hold of ourselves, you know, in the old days when somebody went into what was called hysterics, they'd say, get a hold of yourself. Yeah. To get a hold of yourself, you have to chill, pause, stop, calm down. Go go more slowly, and while doing that, I guess you can be. I mean, that's physically you can stop, but then the mental side evaluate what's happening. Right. Once you're once you put yourself in in a condition, 
uh, materially, where you're not amidst so much external stimuli, then you can try to remodulate your mind and help it to calm down and start think of, thinking of priorities, hierarchy, hierarchies of value. What is important? What is most important? What is least important? Hmm. I actually do talk about that in the book. Yeah. On the section, uh, 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 I think it's chapter six, how adults can refine their own emotional literacy or emotional intelligence. Uh, by various ways of pausing, thinking, what is most important, what is least important, what 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 are your values? I have big big sections on values. What are your values in life? Because, because this matters. Ever, of course, it matters. It's Certainly funny, it matters. But then again, we don't hear about it, right? We don't hear about it until you're going to the psychiatrist to figure out why you feel like your life's out of sync. You know what? And I don't want to be crude or harsh or brutish or insensitive, but we don't hear it hear about it till we go to the psychiatrist or the cemetery. True. Yeah, that we do. We talk about values at funerals. We do. We do. And we should really be talking about values all the time. Hmm. By the way, how would you define value? Right, give birth to a quality of life. They give birth to ourselves as renewed human beings, as valuable. Values mean valuable. The more values we have that are good values, values with goodness, make us more valuable and add to our integrity as human beings, to ourselves and those we love, and by extension to the societies we live within. Hmm. It all starts with us. And it's all and it's it's the you can't separate the value from the mind from I would say the spiritual from the uh body. It's we try to make them all different, you know, containers, but it's us. It's us. It is really really us. It's powerful. It really is one and it's it wants to be one. It wants to be one. It wants to regain that unity, that oneness, amidst the multiplicity. Both are good, but you must never, we must never forget the oneness, the integration hmm. that holds it together. Yeah. What would you say, Frank? We only have about a minute left. What, would you, what advice would you give um, as the one thing we can do to begin to um, – if we want to have better performance, if we want to see better outcomes in our own uh, emotion performance utilization, mm. what, what would you say is the one thing we can do today that would make a difference other than buy the book in August? <laughs> well, um, I would say respect yourself first. And realize that you and the so-called other, other person is really you in a different place. And that you do have emotions, and they are valuable, and they are powerful. They're nuclear energy. Therefore, if it's in you, and if it is your wish, 
freely choose, make a decision to freely choose to develop your emotional intelligence, which I also like to call emotional literacy, by understanding your emotion sensation, your, all those different tinglies that you react with, then bring it up to perception, sort out what feelings you're feeling, are they good feelings, not good feelings, happy feelings, sad feelings, angry, envious feelings, jealousy feelings, com- competitive feelings? Then bring it a, a, a notch higher. Try to comprehend the meaning of those in the bigger context of your life and the life you have with the ones you love. And then check that against what your values are in life and then see how all of that boils down to your behavior. Mm. Beautiful stuff. Dr. Frank Ninavaji, that's his name, folks. And the book that will be coming out uh, uh, is Making Sense of Emotion, Innovating Emotional Intelligence. Plus, uh, he has other books um, as well, you know, Biomental Child Development, plus a variety of other books. Dr. Frank Ninavaji, wonderful resource. We'll have him back on the show, my friends. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, Interesting little research here on inducing of labor and the inducement of labor. If you are a pregnant woman and you are past your due date, well, maybe it's time to try up uh, hitting up Hawthorne's New York Pizza in Charlotte, North Carolina. According to the locals, the the restaurant's signature Buffalo Wing Pizza has the power to induce labor. Made with buffalo sauce, Chicken and mozzarella cheese, the buffalo wing pizza, or the inducer, as patrons now call it, <laughs> has gained an odd reputation for sending soon-to-be moms straight to the delivery room. By the way, what a great way to go to the delivery room. Oh, yeah. That smell of garlic on your breath. pizza? Mm-hmm. My wife, I wonder if she would be interested in trying this. Let's, you know what? You need to take her to North Carolina, but be ready to deliver the baby in North Carolina. I, I'm okay with that. Maybe they could overnight the pizza and it would still be good. You just heat it I up. I bet it Yeah. Sure. Pizza's always better when it's been sitting out for a while anyway. Absolutely. Especially if you're a pregnant woman. In fact, the, the owners of Hawthorne's chain, Michael Adams, claims that several di- uh, women have vouched for the pizza's power since the restaurant's first insistence of, uh, or first instance of buffalo-induced labor. So if you need it, it's there for you. Buffalo chicken pizza. The power to induce a baby into this life. We'll take a break, my friends. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, townies. We're calling them townies now? Townies. That's what I call my people in Townsend Abbey. My townies. By the way, uh, little Townsend Abbey update from the Matt Townsend Show, I'm getting tired of my Sim City. Ooh. I don't have time to get back to it. That's what happens. I've, you know, I'm mayor of 143,000 souls. 
but I'm tired of it. So I'm looking for a city administrator that can just run my simulated city. So, okay. Yeah. So can you let one of your kids do it? I don't know. Do you trust a 14-year-old to run a major city with airport and with a port? Do you trust that and with a hamburger stand? Well, it has to be better than what you're doing because, as the song says, just look at the incompetence of the mayor of the city. Wow. Yeah. That's, I think but that's the my, old... Not my words. Not no. my words. <laughs> words of the song. Yeah. I, 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 think, I, I think they're missing a point. Um, this was... This was a song was made by one disgruntled Taunton townie. Who then mysteriously disappeared. Yeah, we haven't heard from her since. Convenient. I don't know. I think she, she took a boat off, the, off of one of my shores, and she's gone. I haven't seen her. Hmm. I don't know. Don't blame me. I have police and fire. I don't know that they've looked for her. I don't know how many lifeguards I have because I'm not building my beaches up like I should. Now, we know that's not true that they're out there looking for because they're currently taking care of the slurry problem. There is no slurry problem. In fact, I have moved most of my coal-burning plants to wind and solar. It's a very green and clean environment. At Townton Abbey, you can find it on SimCity. All you got to do is go to SimCity and look up Townton Abbey. You can look at other people's and come towns. And, uh-huh, I think so. And come and buy my, come and buy my goods. Hmm. There's an economic model with this game? Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. Hey, we got a great show for you. Not only are you going to get a Townton update, uh, actually, you've had your update. We also are going to be talking about how to fight fair, how to teach your family to fight fair. Julie K. Nelson, the bomb mom, will be joining us. We call her the child whisperer. She gets the children to quit. Going crazy. That sounded more like the child whistler. She she does have a little whistle in her whisper. Julie Nelson will be joining us. Of course, we'll talk about that. Plus, uh, our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation will tell us what's going to be on their show at the top of the hour. We'll be doing a hero story, of course, as well as some more empty news, uh, just other information that you really need to know as we today, May 2nd, celebrate Baby Day. Baby day, the day you celebrate the cuteness of those cute, cuddly, squishy cheek little children of yours. Or not even of yours, the ones that you stand in line behind at the grocery store. Just enjoy the children of the world on baby day. And you two continue your journey as you bring new babies into this world. As for me, we're just raising grandkids now. Thank you. And our other children that are still at home that wonder why we don't pay any attention to them anymore. We'll get to all of that excitement. But first, um, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Twitter, in an effort to try to, uh, I don't know, get people to use the service, has found its first partner for its push into round-the-clock streaming television This according to Bloomberg News. The social media company has joined forces with global financial news outlet to create the service that will stream news produced solely for uh, Twitter 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The channel, which is yet to be named and is expected to be again operating this fall, won't simply rebroadcast footage from Bloomberg's existing television operation, but it will be made up of live news reported from news outlets 
uh, around the world, as well as curated from the mix of video that's posted to Twitter on a daily basis. Twitter has already been streaming live programming for specific events. The company broadcast 800 hours of programming in the first quarter of 2017, up from 600 hours in the fourth quarter last year. But this would mark the first continuous video feed of live news on Twitter for the platform ever. Twitter will add live programs from nearly a dozen partners, including Live Nation, which is uh, concerts and events that way, BuzzFeed, and the WNBA over the next year. So, Matt, will you be watching more Twitter TV? No. Okay. I think the problem is they only give you, you're only allowed to have about 10 seconds of programming at a time. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard to get anything in 10 seconds. It's not easy. It ain't pretty. Other news over the weekend, a hacking collective known as the Dark Overlord released 10 of the 13 episodes of the fifth season of Netflix drama Orange is the New Black. How rude. Yeah, the group reportedly demanded that Netflix pay them to keep the stolen content off the internet, but when Netflix failed to pay up, the Dark Overlord made good on his its threat. Not his. Apparently it's more than one person, or it's just one kid (laughs) in his basement. Who knows? But Orange is the New Black might be just the beginning. 36 other shows are said to have been stolen and ready to be leaked if demands are not met. Shortly after sharing the first of the 10 leaked episodes, the Dark Overlord claimed that Fox... National Geographic, ABC, and other networks would be next on the list if uh, they have their intellectual property made available on the web if they don't pay up. In order to prove they weren't bluffing, the hackers sent a website, uh, a preview of some of the additional material they had acquired. There's a whole list. You can find them online. What a All these different TV shows. That guy better not ruin the uh, National Geographic Rhino documentary I'm looking forward to. Oh, yeah. I've already seen it. So their their motives are clearly financial, and they've sought to extort other victims in the past. Uh, they were involved in some of the uh, healthcare hacks that yeah. were done, and they had some private information. You can't so, give yeah. into that. You can't pay but, for it. But people thought this was bad that you did it with Netflix because usually Netflix just puts out their entire season, anyways. Yeah. And the where they're putting it, you have to have like specific software to download it, so it's kind of a difficult place to find. And why go through the effort? Netflix will put it out in a week, yeah. and then you'll give have the whole Netflix season. Netflix a week, everybody. Don't go do that right. or. You're paying them to be criminals. Right. And finally, the latest craze in the classroom and apparently on the radio show last week is these brightly hand-colored handheld trinkets that spin, have buttons or push, or otherwise keep hands occupied called fidget spinners. Yes. Matt was playing with one last week. They're, uh, they're, they're not just spinners. There's cubes. Uh-huh. I've, I've ordered both, as I have said. You, you, be, need, you need double the fidget. I will have them here in the studio when I have them yes. because I want to play with them all day long. Uh, apparently, they're becoming a problem in schools. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, the idea behind them is is they'll help people focus because they'll have something to deal with the, 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 the random energy they have and they can fidget and keep that under control I mean, and then they'll help them focus They over used here. to play with Stacy's hair. Right. You know, or throw pencils or chew pencils. Yeah, mm. I would. You click, click your my pen. pen, and that's annoying. So these yeah. things are actually quiet. There's no noise, but they, they you know, they're toys. Any off mic sound that comes from the show is usually with Terry. Just fidgeting. Fidgeting. It's a fidgeter. He's a fidgeter. So, we we gave a pen to my two year old, three year old daughter while she was crying. Yeah, and she kept on crying while she clicked the pen, and we could not <laughs> take it seriously. <laughs> It says, some school Great. administrators have already soured on the trend. Frankly, we found the fidgets were having the opposite effect of what they advertise, says this principal at uh, Washington Elementary School in Evanston, Illinois. Kids are trading them or spinning them instead of writing. The staff recently made the decision to ban the fidgets. 
The principal sent out a letter to parents explaining the tools are a distraction or worse because they've caused conflict among students because they, they – first off, one kid had it. Then yeah. all of a sudden, everyone has one. Then people have like five of yeah, them. Yeah, now everyone's doing Then it. they're trading them. Then there's fights because I didn't – that wasn't a fair he trade. He took my fidgeter. The teachers are like, let's just work. Let's not worry about toys in the classroom. But, but on the website with the one – company that's making all the money, uh-huh. they're saying, no, there's research behind the fidget toy. Helps with ADHD and, yeah. and different you know, diagnosis that way. Let so. me give you another thing you could do if you don't want to spend the $2 to $20 to buy a fidget spinner. Right. Just teach your child to bounce their leg. Yep. And that's pretty much what every other kid with ADHD has been doing their entire life, bouncing a leg. It, it works. It's just as effective. So you're the reason why in a church pew... We're sitting there shaking. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, but it's, again, the marketers have found a really cool toy. And they're using parts from skateboard, what a uh, rollerblade. Isn't that the inserts? Or I thought it, the whole thing started initially oh. with a rollerblade ball bearing yeah. uh, axle or what do they call it? Uh, whatever. The yeah, ball yeah. bearings. In. I can see that because it's a ball bearing. That's why it's So that's apparently forever. how it started and huh. it was all the fidgety skateboarders that were doing or and rollerbladers that were doing it anyway. Wow. I didn't think anybody would ever get any more use out of rollerblades. Oh, yeah. Now what you can do is get rid of the blades and just take the little spinners off, you know, glue four of them together, bada boom, bada bing. You got yourself a spinner for nothing. Well, $200 blades. No big deal. Did you see Jimmy Kimmel's emotional monologue? Um, this is what I am. I really and Jeff and I were talking about this. We like Jimmy Kimmel more and more because he gets he's real. He gets up there and he's emotional. Um, but uh, the best of late night, a rundown. Um, one of the things he's he brought up was the fact that he has a son, a new brand new baby son that uh, was born with a heart disease and a heart disorder and. At three days, he needed to have surgery, and he said it was the longest time of his life. He got emotional talking about it, and then he got into why we need to have universal health care or have access for health care to others. Pretty interesting. Yeah. He was talking about uh, his son had a blocked art, a blocked valve, and then there was a hole in his heart. And if it wasn't for a nurse that noticed that his son at like two days old was turning blue mm. – He's like, huh, that's interesting. Let's let's take the kid out. And they tested him, and then they came back, and he had these issues. So open-heart surgery, and then he talked about the doctor was at the airport picking up his mom, and that all worked out so he could get back in time. So all these things worked out. Uh. And after six days, he said his kid was home and healthy. And this is what he said, clip one. This is at the end. Poor kid. Not only did he get a bad heart, he got my face. <laughs> he, um... Six days after open-heart surgery, we got to bring him home, which is amazing. He's, he's doing great. He's eating. He's sleeping. He peed on his mother today while she was changing his diaper. He's doing all the things that he's supposed to do. So cool. Yeah. And, but uh, his point was Cedar sinai Hospital in Los Angeles is supported through a lot of donations. He said he was on the Costco floor. Oh, really? Because Costco made a huge donation to and it supports, and they got this floor named after him because of the yeah. donation. But that's, I mean, it, it's the donations and then help that way, and then also money from the federal government. Yeah. And some of the budget to ideas that have come out have been to maybe we're going to cut some money from that. But that money goes to, in this case, support a medical system right. that helps save his kid. Well, and he's uh, he's a wealthy man, I'm sure, with insurance, and so he's covered. But what about the family that isn't? 
you know? And you perform a surgery, you can save a life. Totally. And he's like, if we could do that, why wouldn't we fund that? That, that should be something that is, is a good a good thing for our tax dollars to go to. Yeah. But, you know, there's different agendas everywhere, and so we'll see where that goes. But that, that was really his point is he's fortunate. He can cover these things, but other people can't. What about them? I just – I love that he's he's real and he's emotional. And honestly, this I think is important that you have – because it's easy to have a Hollywood star – not talk about, not have a baby, not talk about baby, but all of a sudden you have a baby that's sick and it changes your entire life. And it creates a monologue that everyone's going to now pass on and probably save other lives because of it. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, we always see the, the Hollywood stars get involved in things politically, but uh, this, as this one is one that's touching him, even more powerful, isn't it? Uh, well, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with Julie Nelson, the bomb mom we call her, as she helps us understand how to fight in a fair way as a family, I think. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio, Julie K. Nelson, the bomb mom, we call her. She is a professor at, of applied parenting and marriage and relationship skills at Utah Valley University, has also been featured in many academic journals and other forms of media like, for example, the Wall Street Journal, for heaven's sakes, and Parents.com. She's the author of two books, Parenting with Spiritual Power and Keep It Real and Grab a Plunger, 25 Tips for Surviving Parenthood. You can find out more by going to her website, a spoonful of parenting.com. Julie, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Excellent. Excellent. Good to have you here today. You're going to help us fight fair yeah. with our spouse. If we could choose to fight fair or unfair, right? Would let's you fight. Let's fight fair. We ought to fight fair. I mean, yeah, the unfair, <laughs> they don't forget. Yeah, right. It doesn't go well. You know, the, <laughs> the reason I was thinking about this is because my 15 year old son just discovered recently the Rocky series. Right? Oh, really? Yeah. You well, know. where has he been? Yeah. Well, you know, a youngster. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not born yet. And so I finished watching the fourth one with him. And it just I just marvel every time I see Rocky Balboa get into the boxing ring and think, this guy does this willingly to get his brains bashed in. Yeah, what's in? he doing? I can't understand that sport. But, you know, all sports are somewhat like that. Why would a person willingly go onto a court mm. or on a field and willingly put his body in jeopardy and, and perhaps end up in a fight or get injured? Or for example, why would you go to war? Why would you willingly go to war knowing that you're going to face an enemy and perhaps get killed? Why do people willingly go into conflicts? This is, these are examples that contain something that – there's something that they have that we need to learn from that people go into willingly and even they, they enjoy it sometimes. There's some you know, motivation. There's something there that helps to give us confidence in the face of uncertainty. Uh, because we don't know how the game's going to go, or we right. don't know how the war, or the conflict's going to be, and so what is it that these things all have that people will willingly go into? Here's the bottom line: what rules? Hmm. 
They have rules. There's boundaries. There's boundaries in sports. There's rules. Even in, with Rocky, you know, you can't hit certain ways. Yeah. You know, there's can't all, hit the, below the belt. There's a ref there yeah. in the boxing ring to break them apart. Um, there's a referee to keep players protected. If someone gets a little too heated, they lose their head. The referee calls foul. Technical in war, there's engagement rule of, rules yeah. of engagement, right? To give a structure to an otherwise hostile event. It's not a free for all, right? Right. Interesting. So it is with couples who also fight. If we want to fight fair, and I'm using the word fight loosely, I'm yeah. saying if you have a conflict. If you want to have a discussion, if, if you an have argument. A, a, a conflict that you want to talk with your yeah. spouse, uh, we need to uh, not get to a place where we're out of control or mm-hmm. that we are having no boundaries. Right. Like in a boxing ring. You know, you wouldn't go in there if you know you're going to get your brains bashed in and you wouldn't have anything to fight fair with. Now, so, some would. Yeah. But those are the ones you got to worry about, right? <laughs> they, they, right? They, yeah, they've had their brains bashed in too but many I times. But I always use the court example, and I used it in a, in a um, coaching segment a couple hours ago that when you go to court, the reason there's order is because there's rules and there's kind of a, there's kind of a, a scorekeeper, the mm-hmm. judge. Mm-hmm. And once you have the rules and you all understand the rules and we play by the rules, you can have a really difficult conversation. And it's pretty orderly. Yeah. It's powerful. I like that analogy. And you're an expert at this, Matt. And let's keep talking about that analogy of the courtroom because you have two people with conflict who don't mm-hmm. agree. But there's a judge. He can pound the gavel. Yeah. There's going to be some order. And we're going to come to some resolution. So let's talk about the rules and how we can use that in a relationship with conflict Yeah. Um, with couples who fight. So we don't want to get out of control and be unpredictable so that the fighting's unproductive or even destructive. It's good. Okay, so if couples uh, established agreed upon rules, right, and they may not bring in the referee or they may not bring in the judge, but they can judge it and referee themselves, then the conflict can be resolved much easier because you feel safe. Like in like in um, a war where you, the enemy's coming and you feel powerless, what do you say? Retreat. Yeah. Right. Retreat because you feel feel powerless because one person is going to dominate you. That we know about this and you know about this in in a couples conflict. There's mm-hmm. the pursuit withdraw. Right. Always. Yeah. There's the pursuit withdraw. One of the couple, one of the pair and the couple has more power, and so they're the sewer. So what are you going to do? You're going to yell retreat in your mind and you're going to run away. You're going to run away. And sometimes eventually if you fight too intensely, you could have two pursuers that explode. Mm -hmm. You could have two withdrawers that never talk. Mm -hmm. I mean, eventually you just withdraw from each other and you realize we can't talk about anything. Yeah. So there's all those different dynamics that are not productive. And so the person who feels like they are having the loss of power or their powerless person is going to retreat. They're going to lose the battle and there's not equal power. So we want to, with rules, give equal power Mm. so that no one retreats and also no one's dominating the other person. Um, So these are rules that the couples can sit down and, and adopt or agree upon before the conflict arises. It's really important that they're, just like with sports or anything, the courtroom, there's always rules that we know ahead of time. Yeah. So with couples, if you want to fight fair, you have to be able to, when the, there's no conflict, say, what should we do as far as keeping the safe balance of power and that we can come to a resolution where we both feel satisfied um, and I don't feel threatened. That's good. Um, so we got to talk before the conflict. So here's some rules you can uh, change fighting to a constructive discussion that leads to mutual understanding. All right. So these are five ideas I have today. You as couples out there, get your pens out, write these down, but then you can modify these. You can add to them. It's whatever you two agree on. Yeah, and And, and, and there's no end to rules Mm because there might be certain topics that matter. This matters to more than others. There might be certain times a year. Mm -hmm. 
Like we we already know what tends to cause the fights. If it's money, if it's sex, if it's Christmas, where we're going to spend Christmas, then this would be especially where you need to use the rules. And I'm talking about this in a couple's relationship because I think couples set the tone for family life, for children to see how discussions are resolved. Children don't need to see an absence of conflict. They need to see how conflict is resolved. Mm -hmm. So if you try to keep the conflict that mom and dad always agree, you're really doing a disservice to your kids because kids are going to learn at some point that you're going to disagree with someone. They need to know how to fight fair. They need to know how to go into something and have um, a mutual understanding even though we disagree. So if, if parents can set this tone for their kids and have a discussion that's fair, then you're really for children doing a great service for them. And also, if you have a disagreement with your child, this works well, too. Yeah, okay? totally. All right. The first one is, okay, this is pretty obvious, but number one, I just say this, no yelling. Yeah. All right. Um, as you're talking, you have to keep it at somewhat of a tone that's respectful so that it doesn't become a shouting match. Um, passion, fighting can be so passionate that it gets too loud. Then you're just shouting over each other and it becomes a screaming match. It's, you know, we can't do it even in the courtroom. He says, you know, order in the court. Yeah. You have to you have to be able to keep your tone down. So the number one rule, I think, is to keep the tone civil. Yeah. To keep it neutral. Yeah. So it's kind of like this. When one person yells, it's like a a barking dog. Have you ever seen a barking dog? And then the other dogs in the neighborhood start to bark because everyone has to join in. (laughs) And then it just gets louder and louder and louder. And then you start to outdo the decibel level. um, And then you end up yelling over the top of the person and then no one can hear. And so you're talking on top of one another or yelling and screaming. So you have to be able to say we're going to – number one rule is we're going to keep it neutral with the tone. That's really good. And one of the things I've seen too is – so when the tone – going up, it's a sign the words aren't working. Mm-hmm. So we try to use more emphasis, more energy to supposedly get them to do it. Another one we use is we um, we speed up. So whenever I so what I teach my people is start noticing the speed at which you're communicating. Because again, if you wanted to pull your car in the driveway, you wouldn't do it at 70 miles an hour. If you want, if you needed to pull it in the garage, you always tend to slow down. So when you want to make sure the communication is effective, you really need to slow it down. And I know you've got some ways to do that, yeah, but yeah. speed and tone are are the beginning signs that we're not trying to understand each other we're anymore. We're just trying to outdo one yeah. another. Outdo. Yeah, there's a competition going right, on Right, right. And so that's a great point. Number one, no yelling. Now, number two kind of goes along with this because I find that in the tone, um, if you are speeding up and yelling, you end up hurling insults. So yeah. number two, I'm saying no name calling. Yeah. Right. We cannot make this an issue about their character. You slob. You're so lazy. You're so inconsiderate. We're talking about the issue itself. Yeah. So lose the labels, huh? Lose the labels and talk about the issue. And so don't use derogatory statements, no mudslinging. Um, that's all also against the rules. So I call foul um, because you have made this into a personal attack. Um, so that's how you'd correct it. You know what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you could just say, you know what, I call foul. I call foul. And I, and I coach couples to say you have to have these rules ahead of time and also a way that you will referee each other. And you could also say I call foul if mm-hmm. someone says – and again, again, the person would know that's what this means. You've used a, a mudslinging. You know? yeah. And so you can't attack the person but you attack the issue. 
Um, so just like number one and number two, um, this is what Gottman, John Gottman, our great researcher on marriages, talks about escalation. Right. That when you're increasing the volume, the tone, the speed, uh-huh. you use name calling um, and you're screaming, then you start yelling on top of each other and you're escalating the, the energy in the room, which is all going to go badly. Oh, yeah. Um, and so you don't want to rise to the level of the maddest person in the room. And that's what you're doing. You're meeting that person's energy toe to toe. It's like somebody throws down the gauntlet and you get out your sword and you start sword fighting. You have to engage or else you're going to retreat. Yeah. But you don't want to retreat either because, you know, that's not going to do anything. So if you want to engage, you can't engage to the point where you're rising to the level of the maddest person in the room. Mm-hmm. So you have to say, OK, we're going to de-escalate rather than escalate. And how we do this is, number one, no yelling. Um, and number two, no name calling. You know, a really fun little tool. Um, have your everybody record it. So pull out your cell phones mm-hmm. and record it. And the amazing thing is when everybody knows they're being recorded, you'll hear less yelling. Absolutely. You'll also notice there's very little name calling. Absolutely. Because if I'm going to make a record of what you're saying and how you're saying it, you actually will self-censor. Yeah. And so that's why sometimes it works just having a third person there because you're not going to say certain things – and that phone becomes recorded. your judge or that mm-hmm. phone becomes your referee because you know it's evidence. It's like that court recorder who's writing everything down that right. you're saying and they're going to go back and say, go back to what that person said. You right. know, the same thing with your cell phone. You know that yeah. that person can go back. Let's go back and see exactly what Let's you said. Let's do it together. And so one of the rules we're going to say is we will record every one of our serious conversations. I call them real conversations and then that way we can both go back to them. So turn on your phone. I'll turn on my phone. Okay, now let's have the conversation. And it changes the ball game. Absolutely. And Everybody can... puts on their big boy pants when they are about to be recorded. <laughs> That's a great one. Um, number three is to stick to the issue. What happens in a fighting is that we tend to go off running to the races and hotheads just end up prevailing in the bringing back the issues of the past. Yeah. Okay. You start bringing up old grievances. You air your laundry list. Um, so this issue is to – this number one, number three is to just take that one issue at a time. Um, and so if you're going to agree on talking about the in-laws and where we should spend Christmas, we're not going to also talk about how inconsiderate you are about how you don't take out the, the, the garbage or how you never care about me on my birthday. So it's just about that one issue. So again, you need to referee and say, whoa – Foul, you know, timeout or whatever it is. We're just talking about Christmas. Right Love now. it. That's great. Yeah. Um, don't let it creep. Don't let it creep. Don't bring up old arguments. It's like going to a landfill and digging up old garbage and flinging at your partner. <laughs> the past is over. The present, the now is what you want to focus on. Yeah. It's not a smorgasbord either where we, we don't just keep trying. I'll try the five D, the five bean salad now because I haven't tried that since last summer. Mm-hmm. You just don't keep throwing issues in. Mm-hmm. But we do because – we really don't like the issue we're talking about. So if I can't escalate it, then I'll just confuse it. Yeah. I'll confuse it a little bit. Uh, we're speaking with Julie K. Nelson about how to fight fair, how to have a really effective conversation, some basic rules she's going over with us. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, find the love one conversation at a time. Stick with us. Welcome. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show in studio with us, Julie K. Nelson. She's the bomb mom, and she's here today to talk to us about how couples can uh, learn to fight fair. Um, she's been giving us some rules. One rule is no yelling in the argument. So if you're having a discussion that's that's difficult, no yelling, no name calling, and make sure you stick to the issue. Don't let don't get uh, scope creep. We call it where the topic starts to change into whatever it is. Yeah, morphs know. into everything else that you've done wrong that I'm upset with you yeah. about. What else? I'm, I'm just going to give you five today, and I I just want to you know have couples write these down, but create your own list. Um, five are easy to remember, even if you just say three, because mm-hmm. the the more rules you have, the harder they are to enforce and right. remember. So if you can keep it to five or less as couples, I would I would suggest that that would be good for you to start, even if you just start with one. Um, but just kind of use one at a t- start with one at a time until you're good at that. Um, the, if you have too many, it's just too hard. Right. Yeah. So those are three to start with. But this next one kind of talks about. About what Matt you were saying before about the slowing down part, number four helps us to slow down, um, and that is you. And this is the hardest one for all couples who are having contention. Uh, I just can't even emphasize it. This, if you could do this, this one, it could be a game changer. For yeah, you. really, it would be a game changer. It's the hardest one, and that is you have to take turns talking. Yeah, you can't talk over each other. (laughs) Right. And when you take turns talking, you have a responsibility that when it's not your turn to talk, it's your turn to listen. And that's what couples struggle with the very most. Because what's happening is when someone's talking, you're creating your rebuttal the whole time. Mm -hmm. You're creating about how they're wrong and everything they're saying is stupid. Yeah. And when you take turns talking, the rules are about uh, taking turns is that you have to listen and you have to use all your energy on focusing what that person's saying. Don't let your thoughts distract you. Don't start thinking about the dinner you're making tonight or whatever or how stupid they are. And don't formulate your rebuttal. You have to listen and they deserve to be heard and that their point of view is their reality. It is true for them. Yeah. And if you can grasp the idea that even though it may not seem right to you or you think they're wrong, the point is is you both are right because you both are – people who have an opinion from different perspectives. Right. So as long as you can respect that person, it's whatever they think it is right for them, whatever distorted reality they live in, whatever you know, whatever yeah. it is, that is right. That is true. Why are they hanging on to it? So so why are they why are they so desperate to make their case? It's because they really truly believe that is true for them. And even though you're like, what? That is not That's the way to That's crazy. Yeah, that you you can't call them crazy. Right. You can't you have to say, I see that that is true for you. I'm starting to understand yeah. why that is your position because why else would they fight for it if it wasn't dear to them mm-hmm. so when you are taking turns this is probably the hardest one you have to be res- uh, respectful and um I like to tell couples that if you want to be respected for your opinion, you have to offer the same to the other person. Absolutely. All right. So if I'm not willing to be respectful of you, then how can I, you know, model that for you? You can't ask what you're not willing to give. So mm. you have to listen. So when it's my turn to talk, I talk. And again, you slow it down because you're not escalating by jumping in and interrupting the person in the mid-sentence. Right. Now, when you are, it's your turn to talk, you can't go on and on and on and on and on either. Yeah. You have to kind of like say, okay, here's one major point. And if even if you want the person to like repeat it back to you and say it in their own words and then say, yeah, that was correct or no, that wasn't what I meant to say. It was this. Yeah. You know, clarify each other. But it's really important that you give them the turn to then say their point. Because the average attention span is 24 seconds. So if you go talk for three minutes, you lost me. Two and a half minutes ago. At 25 seconds. So I always teach short sentences like two or three. Mm -hmm. Then let me clarify as the listener. Mm -hmm. 
And because there's a there's a benefit to me having to show you I heard you because it actually forces me constantly to listen to you, not to protect, not to create my own argument because it's I have to listen to you to show you I'm hearing you. So if I have to paraphrase back to you, then it actually keeps me from getting into my fight or flight brain. Yeah. And you'll find this something miraculous, couples. You'll find that when you are just using that energy in that time, that 25 seconds or a minute or whatever it is, to just focus in on your partner, that when it's your turn to talk, it's not such a big deal anymore. Yeah. You're like, oh, well, this is kind of how I felt. But it's a lot less – it's a lot kinder and you're a lot less um, – hostile in your approach. You're like, oh, okay, I walked in your shoes for a minute. And now my what my point of view, I can kind of see I can modify it a little yeah. bit. And already you're starting to see have an understanding. Right. Okay. So that's number Good. four. The last good. one, the last one we're going to do, and this is a big one also, and that is you have to pick a good time for your talk. Yes. You have to fight fair. Just like a sporting event or just like the courtroom, you have been summoned to come there or you've agreed to go to the ring mm-hmm. and you're all going to be there at this time, at this place, and you all have been rested. You probably had a good meal. You're all feeling good about it. And so you're going willingly to this event. Yeah. And so when you fight, you don't want to corner your spouse when they come in through the door at the end of the day and say, honey, we got to talk about your overcharges. We talk? Yeah. got to talk about your overcharges on, you know, I just saw that our balance yeah. is, you know, that's like, you know, cornering right. them and no, and everyone want to retreat or else fight. That's you're, you're uh, becoming the enemy there. So you want to make sure you're rested, you're relaxed and you're ready. The four Mm -hmm. R's, rested, relaxed, and ready. This means you maybe even did you say an email, saying, honey, in an email, there's a problem about the overcharges on our credit card. We need to talk over. When would be a good time for you to talk to? Give them space and time to say, okay, i got to think about this and let them have a chance to process that information because when you just thrust it at them, hey, you know, we kind of talk about your mother-in-law coming over tonight, then they haven't had time to process. And they feel very defensive at that moment. You've had time to process, but they haven't. So it's not fair. And some people like to do this every day. But so I I think you should – you've got to be able to talk anyway and have normal talks. But if you're the person that would love to have a – or you're fine having a conflicted conversation every day. You're probably married to someone that doesn't. And so I always suggest we do this sparingly like once a week. Mm -hmm. If this is every night, we have to have a serious discussion about something. Mm -hmm. You're you're going to wear certain partners out. Yeah. So choose your fights carefully. Yes, choose them. And also the good time to talk is not on date night. Date night is to nourish your relationship and to play and have fun. This is separate from that. That's right. Okay. And it's not at 11 o'clock at bedtime at pillow talk when one person's going to fall asleep. Can we talk? Because they're so tired. Or you're just so worn down that the the problem seems huger than it really is. That's big. Good. So, yeah. So create these rules of engagement so both parties are more likely to feel fairness and a shared amount of power and feel safe when you're disagreeing. Um, it may be easy to agree to the list when you're both calm, but when the emotions start to rule over reason, one or both may resort to hostility again. So in that case, as you're practicing these things, you need to make sure that you can referee. The phone is a good one. And also you can just even make a T a T sign with your hand. Right. That, you know, anything that's a, a hand sign or anything, that, even if I reach over and grab my, my husband's hand and say, honey, remember, no name calling. Yeah. Ho- holding hands is another good sign of saying what well, you just crossed the boundary. And it's a kind way of, of like bringing, don't twist their bringing them back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, just softly touch their hand. Yeah, that's another that's sign good. of the T. Whatever it might be to call them back that they've just overstepped the boundaries. Good. Okay. 
Good job. Julie K. Nelson's her name. Go to her website, a spoonful of parenting.com. Uh, I'm sure she'll be posting that on her website there as well. And you can also catch up on her other books, Parenting with Spiritual Power and Keep It Real and Grab a Plunger 25 Tips for Surviving Parenthood. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we'll visit the Good Brethren from BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. It is that time again as we prepare to hand the airwaves over to our good buddies at Sports Nation. Spencer and Jerem are there. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. How you doing? We are fantastic. How are you? I am doing great. Oh, this is accent day for you? Yes, it's accent day. You know what today actually is? Today is baby day. Today we celebrate babies. Okay. Maybe it's time for you guys to have new babies. Go get some babies. Don't we celebrate babies every day? You guys do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right now. Every, everyone knows someone who is a baby, too. Uh, so true. Yeah. So true. I've been babysitting my grandbaby. And, uh, you know, it's incredibly. It's, it's, an, uh, it's awesome. I've realized that the older you get, you're not supposed to have kids too old because it's harder when you're older to, to get through the night with them. It's weird. I slept with my 18-month-old baby, but she wouldn't sleep. So we shared a pillow, and she kicked my wife all night and then just kind of kept taking my, uh, taking my bed over. And I realized, okay, I can't do this very much longer. So we took her back to the other grandma. Yeah, that's the thing about being a grandparent, right? You, you know. can just do all the fun stuff and not have to generally do what you just described it's, so I'm sorry. which is why i don't know how you guys i don't know how you guys can do it and then we you took, already did it we took her well we took her to sushi she's not big into sushi she's not a sushi baby how old is she? she's 18 months but she likes sticky rice and she likes avocado so there you go which are they constipate her but you know that's a well, lot of information being me. a baby is yeah to be constipated to some hey i gotta ask you guys about this um Speaking Car- of. Carlos, yeah, speaking of babies. Um, no, Carlos Martinez, <laughs> uh, the pitcher, I guess, for the Cardinals, mm-hmm. has a, st- a superstition. And he had to toss his silver hair extensions in the trash um, so that he could change his luck. What in the world? I Yeah, when I'm out of luck, I throw away my extensions. Like, that's so, like the number three thing. Is that what you do? What, what are your superstitions? Do you guys have, do you guys have like, when you're walking to the show, do you have to tap the wall like Notre Dame or whatever? Or do you have to, what do you do? I think there's a, yeah, there's a difference between tradition and yes. superstition. Okay. Superstition is I won't walk over the foul line. In baseball, because there's bad karma. Right, we're not we're not going to confuse that with routine, right? right. Okay. Rout- routine is like before BYU Sports Nation. I'll go through the ninety percent of the time. I'll go through the control room and like just give everyone dap or something. Like, all right, let's go team or whatever. Wow, that's nice of you. Superstition. I don't. I don't think I have anything that I'm because I don't want that to control my mentality well, or attitude. But I heard you guys wore the same socks. And you've never washed them since you started doing the show. Well, who are your sources? I want to know where your sources <laughs> uh, just are getting their Is it Sheila Line? Yeah, it's Sheila Line. Don Sheila Line was telling through me the garage, you guys— You went through the garage door uh-huh. and talked to Don Sheila I did. Line. And he said, your socks stink, and you haven't changed them. I always I was laugh. 
my wife, she'll be like, oh, that stinks. I'm like, what do you expect to smell like? Like, <laughs> like strawberries and sunshine? Like what? Isn't that weird? And like my wife will actually like <laughs> smell it. Like she'll lift whatever the stinky thing is up to her nose to smell it. And I'm yeah, like, no, 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 no. No, no. Even if it's my grandbaby, she'll like smell her. No. Are you yeah. superstitious, Spencer? I don't, not really. I mean, I, th- I think that there, everybody has kind of a weird thing. Like some people are weirded out by the number 13 mm. or, mm. I, but I'm, I'm trying to think of like superstitious things that I might deal with. Like if I'm on, you're like, a little stitious. Yeah. I'm, I'm just a little stitious. Thank you, Michael Scott. Like a I, I don't know. Like I get kind of weirded out when I see a certain number. What three, number? Three sixes in a row. <sighs> yeah, that's a weird one. Yeah, that's a really weird number. Like on my car, on my speedometer, I'm like, I got to get to mile six sixty seven. I have got. I am so not you parking speed up till I... thereby endangering yourself. <laughs> no, yeah, no, I I don't. I realize that it's stupid, but like, yeah, that's probably the closest thing I have to any sort of like weird superstition are you superstitious man no did you know what was weird when you just said that it was six minutes and 66 seconds before the show <laughs> it's not true i just looked at the there's no such thing as 66 which means seconds. it would be seven, seven minutes, minutes and six, six seconds, seconds. <laughs> exactly tim tebow hit his first minor league home run did he against a dude that was the 666 pick <gasps> that draft oh i'm not, I'm not kidding <laughs> I am not kidding. <laughs> see, but see, but he's because the, he's like the yeah, the legend of Tebow, like, like yeah. the holy baseball player. Exactly, you know? he will straighten the force out. Hey, um, what's going on on your show? I know you're Green still Valley. doing it. I heard that from Don Sheila line. You're oh, still doing it. You went through the garage door. Yeah, and he said you're doing your show. And he said this will take a while. Yeah, <laughs> we're discussing BYU's NFL draftability, specifically. The one pick that BYU had this year, and is it enough? Does Hmm. it matter for BYU to have multiple draft picks into the NFL each year? Maybe you think it does. Maybe you think it doesn't. Yeah, why are we not? Opinions. Sure. Uh, John Beck will join us, former BYU quarterback, second-round pick to the Dolphins in 07. He'll weigh in on that, plus the perceived fit with the Green Bay Packers of Jamal Williams and Taysom Hill. Yeah, baseball and softball climbing the national rankings between the lines with Lauren Frankham, undercover athlete, and Mo Longy, the big man, is on campus. And don't forget, men's volleyball, NCAA tournament tonight, 6 Eastern time. Beautiful. Against Barton. Beautiful. Who? Who? Barton? Beautiful stuff, guys. Good luck on the show. By the way, Spencer and Jerem, two non-superstitious but very ritualistic gentlemen who are afraid of the number 666 and uh, the 13th floor. And, in fact, I saw Jerem yesterday looking for the 13th floor of BYU Broadcasting. And really? I, t- I told him, you know what? We only have three floors. So quit looking. <sighs> That's why we do it. Hey, um, some news. We just got to get to you. It's empty news. It's, it's news you may not know you need. Um, a man was accused of setting a girlfriend's purse on fire, which caused power outages. Uh, Angel Santino Million got angry at his 17-year-old girlfriend. She told Florida police officers that he grabbed her purse and set it on fire with a lighter. Million, 18, then threw the burning purse over the gate of his residence, according to the arrest form. Firefighters believe the burning purse then ignited a palm tree that the city valued at $3,000. Uh-oh. Flames spread to the Florida Power Light electric box and caused power outages in the neighborhood, authorities say. The teenage girl gave a detective video that she said Million recorded of the incident and sent to her. Police officers then arrested him on Friday, and he was facing second-degree arson charges. 
That sounds like one spicy dinner. He should have been listening to our earlier guests about emotional management and how to have a fair fight. One of the rules, obviously, you do not light your girlfriend's purse on fire, especially near a $3,000 palm tree. So he's in trouble, and he's, he's got some splaining to do now. Um, uh, another Florida man, believe it or not, uh, another one, always out of Florida, because just so you know, we're not putting down Florida. They're the only state, I guess, that releases all of this information. Uh, so that's why we have so many fun Florida stories. A Florida man stole a forklift from behind an electronics store, uh, moved some large boxes to a neighboring parking lot, and then took the machine for a spin, police said. After a Daytona Beach police officer stopped him and asked him what he was doing, Bradley Barefoot is his name, said he wanted to drive because it was better than walking, which is a great point. He wanted to drive because it's better than walking. According to the rest report, Barefoot was driving forklift, the forklift around 4 a.m., although the machine had no lights and it wasn't street legal. And by the way, yes, he was driving it barefoot, hmm. which is not the way to drive a, a forklift if you steal it. I mean, anybody that's ever stolen a forklift knows that. And a great point. It is easier than walking. Now, our final story of the day happens to be the hero story, as usual, and this is the story about some good Samaritans rescuing an infant toddler from Texas floodwaters. A deadly weekend storms and tornadoes claimed at least 14 lives in parts of the South and Midwest last weekend, but the toll could have been higher if not for a group of good Samaritans who rushed to rescue a father, a toddler, and an infant from their truck that had flipped over and was submerged in rushing water. Video shot on a cell phone by local resident Tom Mitchell in Myrtle Myrtle Springs, Texas, um, showed that uh, the group of people struggling against the current of water to open the vehicle door and rescue the people inside. Then one of the rescuers rushes from the vehicle carrying an unresponsive infant. Mitchell at that point puts down uh, the child to do CPR on the baby. The video continues as Mitchell labors uh, to work to save the baby's life with a woman heard praying for the child's life. Dear Jesus, please let this baby breathe and by golly, it all turned out okay. The daring rescue added a positive note to an otherwise tragic uh, weekend. Among the victims of severe weather in Texas and several other states were several children and senior citizens. I think it goes to show how the community and strangers all came together. The, uh, the, the people on scene said, so congratulations to all the good Samaritans that helped those that were in need. Really, that's all it takes to be a hero. And when we're in a world full of so many people... We can all, every day, find a way to be a hero to someone else. You don't have to save a life. Sometimes you can just give some time, some attention, some focus. How about just a thank you once in a while or just service? So go and do. uh, Make things happen. This is why we do the show. We'll be back again tomorrow to give you more ideas, more information to live longer and love stronger. Until then, take care of each other.